on today's show. A reunion between the boy from Liverpool and the boy from Long Island. I've never disguised my love for Paul McCartney. What a genius. What a man. You talking about yourself? <laughs> and then I met John. Wow. And I would say to people, oh, yeah, I've written a couple of songs. And people would go, oh, wow. But he said, so have I. Ah. All right. As we welcome singer, songwriter, producer, composer, and Beatles. McCartney only on the Howard Stern show hey now everybody hey now Robin hey now hey now good morning everyone ah yeah crank it up I'm uh my ears are bleeding I got that music so loud Good morning. Uh, we've got a very special morning. Paul McCartney later on in the show wrote a really cool book, and I'll be talking to him about it. The book is called The Lyrics. It prints out the lyrics to many of his songs and the memories of writing them, and that's right up my alley. I love it. And uh, so we'll be talking about that. I just was looking at the news, and uh, Brian Williams, who used to be the anchorman at NBC News, he had a move. He got punished and moved over to MSNBC because he lied. He said he was in a helicopter in Vietnam or something. Who, you know, no, who cares what it? No. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think it was Vietnam. I think it was in Jersey. <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe he lied about being flying over Jersey and getting shot at. <laughs> I thought it was. You know, now I don't even remember the controversy. But wasn't he covering a story in Vietnam? He was and he covering said covering a war. I think it was Afghanistan or something oh, was like it? that. Afghanistan. And yeah. uh, he claimed he took fire. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so after that, he went over to MSNBC. He got demoted to cable. Which, by the way, I never watched the network news on NBC. But I always watch MSNBC, so I got to know his work on MSNBC, and I was like, oh, no wonder they paid this guy $7 million a year. He's good. I mean, his show on MSNBC was really good, and uh, he just has a gravitas. He has a way of delivering the information and yeah, questioning even when he people. Lies. <laughs> he yeah, and, it really believably. <laughs> right, but he didn't lie like Aaron Rodgers. Like Aaron Rodgers endangered other people. He just he's a newsman, and you lose credibility when you lie. He so embellished old, the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still don't know why the guy did that, but anyway, I love him. I I think he's terrific uh, on MSNBC. But uh, he announced all of a sudden he's retiring, and I didn't think much about it. But then this morning, Jason said to me, do you think he's retiring because like he's just tired of doing the news or do you think it's the money? I went, oh, OK, now you got me. What, what What's going on? Do well, you think? which is it? Which is it? Well, his theory was that uh, I guess he read this somewhere that Brian Williams contract was with NBC News when he was still the head anchor man on NBC, yeah. you know, the top uh -huh. banana. So they paid him seven million bucks a year to be the top dude. Then when he lied and got sent to MSNBC, they had to pay him the same $7 million. And now that contract's up. And all of a sudden he said, hey, where's my $7 mil? In fact, maybe give me a little bump. Right. And they, and they were like, hey, we just had to pay Rachel Maddow a shitload of dough. And 
and uh, we're not going to pay you the same amount of money we were paying you on the old contract because you're not on, you know, that was for being on NBC, the big network. Yeah, that was the flagship. Uh, that was yeah. the flagship money. We're, we're, we're demoting the money. And then he probably just said, fuck you. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not taking a demotion. Well, then but, he might uh, wind up somewhere else. Who knows? How old think? the dude is he? How old is he, I don't know. Robin? You know everyone's age. She always checks. I could guess. Time. No. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a game. Later, I'll play a game with you, but not now. <laughs> I got a game for you today if we get to it before oh, yeah? Paul. Yeah, uh, it's um, the um, I'm, I'm going to. Uh, OK, it's about porn, actually. You might be good at this. This is, uh, you know, Me? they do a lot of. Yeah, they do a lot of topical porn nowadays oh, okay. like uh i might say to you gee do you think there's a brian williams uh retiring porn and you'll say <laughs> that doesn't sound right I, no way oh brian williams is 62 years old and i gotta tell you that's a little for a guy with that kind of accomplished career my advice would be and my guess would be that uh he should retire from work because your brain goes to mush and um you know, my dad retired at 57 or something crazy. He had to. He was into forced retirement. It's a whole long story, boring story. I'm not going to bore you with it. But, uh, you know, now he's like, you know, he had a couple of good years. But so yeah, Brian a lot of people Williams, don't do well in retirement. No, you got to stay sharp. You got to stay sharp. It's weird. You know, I was even thinking about Paul McCartney. I've spent so much time reading his book. And the lyrics, and uh, I listened to his music. I even went back and listened to all the songs that are in his book just to kind of wash myself in Paul McCartney. And uh, I was like, you know, Paul's certainly up there in age, you know. We're all on the back nine, as Billy Joel says. And I wonder how his health is. You know, he seems so robust. I saw some pictures of Paul on a vacation he was in his bathing suit with his hot wife and they were in the water and they're swimming and paul's running around like a young man but you never know behind closed doors is paul okay how's his health everyone who gets up into a certain age has some fucking shit going on as we know you wonder what pill sent in a video when he was inducting somebody recently into the hall of fame I was like well is ringo okay you know could he not travel what's going on well, I, you know, it's funny you say that. My thought was Ringo, he looks, Ringo looks amazing. Ringo's 80 years old, 80. Yeah. I mean, 80, you know, he's, he's, he's looking at the, he's looking at that, uh, white light that's uh, right above the uh, door. <laughs> he's you know in that I mean? tunnel. And he can <laughs> yeah, see he's in light. that tunnel. He's got a foot in that tunnel and that white light <laughs> come to the light. Uh, he's 80 he beat the odds and the dude is sharp and spry when he was in with Joe Walsh the last time Ringo was bopping around like a young dude I'm telling yeah. you but you know I sit there and I go I wonder what's really going on dude. how's his prostate how's his eyes how's his bowels how's everything you know <laughs> I, want, I wish I could say to Paul I don't want to say it to him but I want to say Paul you okay what's going on should we be downloading your brain into an artificial intelligence robot? Because he's too important. That guy is so important. And I love talking to him. 
And he has. I know. You know what? what uh, the one thing that doesn't rub off is his attitude with you. <laughs> he has such an up. You know, he looks at everything. He sees the the silver lining in everything. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good man. I love yeah. that about him. Yeah, he's a good dude. Really is. He's just, you know, I even said to my wife this morning, I go, I don't know how Paul's so normal because the guy for, for, for real really deserves to get his ass licked. I mean, he's that fucking talented. When you go back and listen to those songs, you're like, Jesus, if there's ever somebody who should really be, uh, smothered in accolades, it's Paul McCartney. And not only that, he's a decent dude too. The way he loved Linda, the way he loves his now wife. Nancy, I mean, all he, of them. He loved them all. He did. He, he's a good guy, he, and and like most guys who live in rock and roll, live in such a weird dimension because they're so insulated and so pampered, and in their own universe, most of them can really get carried away. Let's just say that. And they're also really young when this stuff happens and you don't yep. have any boundaries or limits or understand the consequences and so they think they should taste everything and eat everything and smell everything so yeah. they might go through five or six hundred women and all that stuff but i don't i don't uh you know i don't know what's going on well, paul's health he seems he seems robust and young but you just never know what's going on behind closed doors and i always i always get morbid like how much more time do I have how much time does Paul have? How much time does Ringo have? It's uh how much time does anybody have? But it's just, you know, that guy's such a treasure and and he's such a wealth of knowledge. And you know, I'm also kind of um I've said this to Paul in other interviews, I'm not gonna bring it up again. But while the death of John Lennon is so horrible, it's something that makes me angry to this day, I feel it also led to a weight being lifted off of Paul's shoulders and a liberation. And what I mean by that is that John, while a brilliant artist and just about one of the most amazing people that's ever walked the planet during my lifetime, he could be so vicious and mean to Paul. It, it was just a weird thing when the Beatles broke up for whatever reason. And John, as Paul has said, in his opinion, broke up the Beatles. John, in his music and even in his interviews, was brutal to Paul. He just couldn't let it be alone. He couldn't, like, if Paul put out an album, John had to put out an album criticizing Paul's album. And it was this, you know, imagine in your life, you're doing some great things, you're writing great music, the person you wrote great music with is a great guy, but for whatever reason didn't work out. And then, for the rest of your life, every time you make a move, you go out on tour with Wings, or you go out and write a book, or you put out an album, there's your older brother going, this is shit, this is bullshit, what's he doing this for, what's he doing that for, what's what, blah, 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 as you say. <laughs> and um, can you imagine, like, I would be like, oh my God, I'm about to put out a book, what the fuck is this guy going to say now? The guy I, I love and the guy I love writing music with, he's, he's like my nemesis now. He's my arch enemy. What did I do to this guy? I know. Guy? They were like supervillains to each other. Yeah. And Paul was uh, Superman and John was Batman. <laughs> well, you know what's weird, too? Paul put out a song called Dear Friends. I don't know if you know this song. Some people don't know it. But what's so interesting about the song is Dear Friends is basically Paul going, Hey, John, what the fuck did I do to you? What the fuck did I do to you? He writes about it in the book. 
about the song Dear Friends. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it basically is just like, I can't figure this out. Why do you fucking, why are you so angry with me? What did I do to you? You know what, maybe I got to talk to Paul about this. I don't know. And And they never talked it out. Well, if you read the book, which I suggest you do, they did come to an understanding. Yeah. And it was weird. Like, even after all that shit, they ended up hanging a bit. And even in the book, I got to ask Paul about this. Paul says, our last conversation when I sat with John was about baking bread. And to me, that just broke my heart. Like, that's such a family thing, talking about baking bread, the smell of bread in a house. And, uh, you know, they were able to talk about something peaceful, simple, basic to life, eating bread. And, um, you know, there's a beauty in that, almost like an Ingmar Bergman movie. But I don't know that the real issues were addressed. They never mm. got to the why. Why all the anger? Why the hate? Why the viciousness? I am sure if John was alive and Paul put out this book, John would be somewhere going, well, that's Paul's uh, opinion of what Version, happened. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, he's that's his truth. And blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, God, you're inhibiting me. Um, but you only do that to people you love, you know, like the people you hate. You spend the most time know. thinking about, you spend right. the most time studying and worrying over and wondering what they're doing and thinking. It's kind of a love. It's kind of a devotion. Paul still wonders how um, John felt about the song Dear Friend. He never got a response from him. So, mm. yeah. So anyway, uh, wondering about that too. He, he made sure no. to always leave him not knowing something so he could stay in Paul's mind. Yeah, maybe I do have to play Dear Friend. I wasn't going to discuss Dear Friend with Paul because, you know, you got you to gotta make decisions what songs you're going to talk about with him. Right. But, uh, Seems to be on your mind. It is on my mind. It drives me crazy how critical John was of Paul. And for no good reason. I mean, when Paul uh, did Too Many People, which is still one of the greatest songs, he admits he was, you know, firing back at John, who was constantly firing missiles at him during that time. Mm -hmm. And finally just broke down and wrote Too Many People. Too Many People going underground. Too Many People. uh, Yeah, I'm so bad with lyrics, but... It which is there it is. Oh. 
I quote that line all the time. You, I know you quoted it to certain people who worked on this show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are people who worked on this show. I go, you took your lucky break and you broke it in two. You get crazy. I know so many people in life. I was talking about Beth with this the other day when we were taking a walk because she gets a, you get a three hours of radio show a day, Robin. Beth gets the uh, gets the rest of the, the 21 hours. Yeah, 21 hours in there. It's like, I did a whole speech on um, too many people and uh, you took your lucky break. I got a friend. He took his lucky break and broke it in two. It drives me crazy. I begged this guy. I said, don't you realize how good you have it? Here's, this is what you need to do. People have no common sense. People have no fucking... I had a friend. He was on top of the world. He, everything was good, and he had to go and fuck it up. And I know people who worked on this show had to go fuck it up. Some people are not comfortable winning. They don't want to win. They want to be at the bottom of the fucking barrel. It's it's pressure to be at the top. It's easier to be among the losers who fuck things up. They sabotage themselves. Don't take your lucky break and break it in two. Know when you have your lucky break. That's the problem. People don't yeah, identify. Yeah, they don't recognize it. No. I always say. I got a lucky break with this radio. I remember I was so tempted to walk away from radio when Rupert Murdoch was seducing me with the late night talk show thing. Uh, it was a pivotal point in my career. And I went, no, you don't give up this radio. You don't take your lucky break and break it in two for some 13-week contract where these fuckers, look what they did to Chevy Chase. Yeah. Chevy they did Chase it over and, and over again. Joan Rivers, Chevy Chase. Yeah, <laughs> just, Joan Rivers. They grinded up a lot of people. Well, they brought me in secretly to sit there in the audience at the Joan Rivers show while they were plotting with me how to, uh, you know, what, what would we do, Howard, if we put you on instead of Joan? And I'm like, I'm sitting there and I'm going, Joan Rivers, one of the greatest fucking people on the planet, stand-up comic. I'm sitting here in the audience and these guys are saying to me, how do we, let, let's unseat the queen and make you the king. And I went, wow, this is fucked up. Radio's treacherous, but man, TV's even worse. <laughs> TV's even worse. And uh, then I started seeing uh, in my mind with that Chevy Chase show, what they did to him. Coming up on TV, the greatest comedian, Saturday Night Live, movies, we're giving him his own talk show, the great Chevy, Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase Theater. <clears throat> Chevy Chase Theater. And then, and then nine weeks later, Chevy's like, they're like, Chevy's a piece of shit. We're getting rid of him. You know, like, like what? And, you know, media is so powerful. They could destroy a guy in nine weeks. Yeah, and you don't have the mouthpiece that they do. You know, there's no. no fighting back. Well, one of the things I figured when I would observe all this behavior, and believe me, it's like a chess game, I would say, whenever I got fired, I got to get out ahead of it. I got to get my fucking story out first because that's the story that sticks. So, you know, everything's fucked up, but don't take your lucky break and break it in two. And that's, that's what Paul was saying to John. We got, we got, we beat the odds, man. We're so good together. Why do you gotta fuck it up? 
I mean, you know, look, those guys were talented enough to have brilliant solo careers, but you know, everything's better than the Beatles and that music. They changed the world. They changed music. They changed fashion. They changed everything. Well, Paul in the book writes that uh, John kept telling him they should go into business with this character, Alan Klein. And Paul was against it. And and history has proven that Paul was right in terms of the business because, uh, you know, that's when their music got sold and all that other crap. And Paul got fed up. And that's, that's that's when he wrote the line, you took your lucky break and broke it in two. You know, Paul was saying to John, you made this break. Good luck with it. You know. Your lucky yeah. break was, you know, it, it, there's so many ways you can interpret it. But what a great song. That, and that that's the book, really. The book is like, hey, how do these great songs come about? What was it based on? What was going on in your life at the time that made you right? You took your lucky break and broke it in two. And so he goes through, I forget what the number of songs is, like maybe 150, 464 songs. Literally writes out the lyrics and then says, here's what was going on. Here's what I was thinking. That's a hell of a book from yeah. perhaps the greatest songwriter of all of all time. Of all time. Paul McCartney. Well, you don't know of all time, uh, but of I our do. time. <laughs> uh, of all time, I do know. Who do you say? Okay. <laughs> who do you say is better? Who is? I don't I'll know spit- who lived then. <laughs> who I else? what was going on. <laughs> who else in the history of mankind? You know, maybe there was some dude back in the caveman days who was, you know, grunting out some kind of weird thing on a piccolo. And they were like all tapping their feet and and clicking their finger. Right. But but uh, aside from that, I have to say, (laughs) when you pull out every one of those fucking albums, Paul McCartney, uh, forget even just the Beatles albums, what John and Paul put together. uh, It's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. It's not even possible. It's not even humanly possible to have that many songs from two guys. But I would wish that you had a whole history of music and songs to draw that conclusion from. I feel like blowing my mind. I do up. though. I do. I know. I I know. I'm right when I say this is the greatest living songwriter right now. That's it. And I don't think I'll tell you. I'll make you another prediction because I'm pretty good on predicting. Ever since I predicted that we'd be in quarantine for years and years not just you know a few weeks but uh this um i don't think you're ever in the history of music going forward now going into the future i don't think you'll ever see that accomplishment again not from not from two guys you might have a couple of great songs from this one and that one but that you will never see this again so when you hear this guy for an hour talking, pay attention. That's all I'm saying. Because you're never going to, we're lucky enough to be alive while this guy's alive. And someday someone's going to say to you, you were alive when this guy was alive. What, what was you that heard like? Him, you saw him. Yeah. You, yeah. You knew him. That's how important this guy is in terms of music. There's nobody, there's nobody more important. And, uh, there isn't. And Billy Joel will tell you that. And Elton John will tell you that. And David yeah, Bowie, them, rest in peace. in this time. In any don't time. I know what was going on no, before. Robin, stop it. <laughs> As I'm telling you, in any time. You just time. know about your time. You know, no. like, it's it's like your parents told you that, no, you know, their era no. was the best. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie oh, and... Uh, <laughs> Dizzy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
of Rosemary Clooney was the greatest <laughs> of all time. They did. They said that was the best. Yeah. The Andrews sisters were the best. Now, this is the guy. This is the guy. And so, you know, when he writes a book, I pay attention. This is the closest thing you're going to get to Jesus Christ. Ugh. Now, why do I say that? Yes. I'll tell you why. <laughs> why do you John have Lennon, to say that? John Lennon once said, <laughs> you know, none of us have ever met Jesus. We only read about him in a book. But John Lennon once said, and he got crucified for it. He got really, he got in big trouble. He said, the Beatles are more important than Jesus Christ. Something along those lines. And people didn't understand what he was saying. But I did. Because I was never really moved by religion. And re and I spent a lot of time with religion. I should be a fucking rabbi the way I spent time with religion. I had training like a ninja. But I never had a feeling from it like I did when I first put on Sgt. Pepper's. Or I heard Rubber Soul. Or I heard the music in Abbey Road. Or saw the movie Help. There was a feeling that it evoked. A religious, calming, elevating feeling that religion was supposed to bring to me. And that's what John was talking about. And John and Paul created a body of work that's like a religious experience. So again, this guy is a living embodiment of a, a higher power. He was blessed with a talent that is magical. You know, it's like uh, he was channeling something bigger than, than humanity. Well, That's in truth, stuff. Uh, Jesus was, he only had 12 followers. <laughs> That's right. You know how many John and Paul had? 50, <laughs> 50 60 followers. <laughs> the world was following them. Everything Absolutely. they did. That's what John meant. He wasn't being disrespectful to people who are true believers in the, the words of Christ, he was just saying, we're big. We're moving people the way religion does, maybe more so. You know, reading those old dusty doctrines, we're moving that many people. And the world was going to shit and shine only. But man, when you, you thought it was bad then. Yeah. You know, there was a <laughs> lot of shit that went down in the name of religion. And, uh, you know, there was a more lot of peace and love. going down now in the name of religion. There you go. And, and, uh, you know, back then you saw all of a sudden flower power, breakthrough, peace and love. And there was some real powerful stuff in that music. Peace and, and love. Um, peace and love. And I'll tell you, it's an amazing thing. And here's the real amazing thing. And this should give hope to anybody who aspires to be a great singer and songwriter like Paul. This guy can't read or write music. That's even more amazing. He channels it from a place that is crazy. He doesn't know how to, the greatest songwriter of all time doesn't know how to read or write music. What does that tell you? I don't even know what it tells you. I'm just saying it. I don't even know what I'm saying right now. That's how profound it is. <laughs> but there's something to what I'm saying. I don't know what it is, but I know I'm saying something. Thank you. All right. Enough about Paul. What are because you saying? I'll talk to him later. 
But uh, I just felt inspired to say this. And I hope he hears a tape of it. Because I really do mean it. That's how I feel about the guy. He's an important dude. And we lived during his time. Which is even more incredible. We lived during the time of Steve Jobs. We lived during the time of Paul and John Lennon. And uh, now, uh, you know, we, it's these are the people. These are the people we got to pay attention to. They're moving the world. They're shaking it up. It's yeah, not really, Congress. Not Congress. Not. I mean, you know, things are so fucking weird. I still can't go over how much the world has changed in my time. I, I don't even believe these conspiracy theories, the lack of belief in science, not by everyone, but by a lot of people. It's crazy. But anyway, getting back to Brian Williams, I don't know how I got on this. But yeah, that was a roundabout way to get back to Brian Williams. We we went through the Beatles and history and everything. I'm taking you everywhere, Robin. You and I are going places. We just went around the world. That's right. People love it. Um, yeah. Speaking of Brian Williams, so the question was posed to me. What do you think it is? Do you think the dude just had enough of the news business or do you think it's a contract negotiation? Once Jason said to me this whole thing about, hey, his contract was up with NBC, the the big network, and they want them to take a pay cut. I got to think that's what's going on because the guy's pretty vital. I see him on there. He's sharp as can be. He's terrific. He's at the top of his game. He's really good on MSNBC. In fact, I think by lying and being thrown to the wolves, MSNBC, the guy actually shined more. I think it actually improved his career i respected him more i didn't watch that network news that network news what are they doing they give you 16 minutes of news because they got so many fucking commercials and the dude is just sitting there basically being a puppet and reading off a teleprompter which is a skill don't get me wrong but what He's he does like on MSN, up records you know that's that, a skill <laughs> right who do you respect more <laughs> the local talk radio guy, you know, the guy who gives you his opinions or the dude who reads the news on 1010 wins. I mean, you know, come on. And uh, in my mind, Brian Williams blossomed over at MSNBC. But, uh, you know, they don't they look that they, what the guy. Well, they got to base what, it on viewers, don't they? I mean, I don't know what his ratings are. Here's the thing, Robin. First of all, over at those Fakakta news stations, you know, MSNBC, Fox News, and uh, CNN, you'd be shocked what they get for a minute of commercial time. It ain't that great. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 every, everything is so splintered now. They're lucky sometimes at night they got seven people watching that shit. <laughs> I think I'm one of them. That's it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and unfortunately, unfortunately for the performers on these channels like Fox, CNN, and MSNBC, it ain't the performer. It's the channel. See, they're at that mercy. In other words, what am I saying? You take Bill O'Reilly. He was the biggest guy on Fox News. You couldn't find bigger. He was the top guy on cable news. They, they didn't let you forget about it. every man. Bill O'Reilly, I know you don't believe us, but he really is the top guy in cable news. Like, I know this fucking asshole is a top guy. That was basically what they'd say. And you go, really? Okay. He gets his ass in the slam, and they get rid of him. They fire his ass. They can't afford to even keep track of all the fucking women who are coming out of the woodwork. And who do they put in? Tucker Carlson? Tucker Carlson was working on Bubba's show. That's that's how things were going. Bubba's living in a van 
And Tucker yeah, was his main to guy. His opinion. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I remember Bubba. Bubba used to have Tucker on every day. I hated Bubba the Bubba deal. And we're going to have a Tucker Carlson deal, and Tucker would come on and talk to Bubba. And you're like, hey, guy's pretty intelligent guy. Blah blah. blah. You know, well, geez, I send myself. He's he's basically just doing Bubba's show. Well, the next thing you know, they plug him into the Fox News machine. They give him the talking points, and he's off to the races, and he's all in. Yeah, they talk about what he said now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly, they don't remember him. You got to, you know, look at uh, Megyn Kelly. She was on. She was great on Fox News. They, they, she, she got uh, crazy. Went over, took her lucky break, and broken in two. Went over to NBC. You know, and uh, it wasn't the right fit. She was perfect on Fox News. Megan did a great job over there, and uh, you know, so you got to know that uh, a lot of the, the a lot of the people, same with Brian Williams, they're going to find somebody else. They're going to stick on there, and they're going to do just as well as Brian Williams. And and you'll be forgotten if yeah. you don't pop up somewhere else. I don't know what they're offering Brian Williams, but if he wanted to put in three more years, so you know, look, you got to realize who you are. The reason people are talking about you and stuff is because you're on MSNBC. Uh, he might have to take a pay cut, but uh, I don't think he's going for it. Probably got enough. He, you know what? Probably made a lot of coin in this business. And I don't uh, know. Does he still have the friends he used to have over there? Is it still the same administration? Because that's how he survived the last go round. I don't know. I don't know the that's that's a sophisticated question. I don't know. I don't know the answer. <laughs> I'm not a reporter. I'm just over here spewing a bunch of shit. Uh, Brian Williams averages a little over a million viewers. Rachel Maddow leads the MSNBC pack and barely gets 2 million viewers. So, you know, there's a limited audience there. Now, this Rachel Maddow, she's terrific. She is terrific. And even she's now saying, now, she's their biggest star. And when she does a show, I watch her show all the time. It's fantastic. The woman reminds me of Paul Harvey, the way he used to weave those stories in and out. She's a strong broadcaster and a bright, bright woman. But again, she got to be on MSNBC. It's a perfect plug-in for her. Forget these what, is she talking about going of... somewhere else? No. No, no, no. They just gave her a big contract, and now she's she's hocking them. She wants to do a show once a week. What? What, what, what do you mean? A she... different show? I don't know. No, no the same. But what, what, what does she think she is? Me? <laughs> Where do you get that deal? Once a week? That's putting thoughts in my head. Uh... I show up here three times a week, and that's under protest. And I do a couple of hours a day. Come on. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Brian Williams, if I was him, I think I'd recognize Rick. Listen, he did the impossible. He came back from stolen valor. You know, he was like, hey, I was in this uh, situation, and I was brave. And meanwhile, there was no situation. So, you know, he got a lucky break. Don't break that in two. Don't break it. Well, it all depends on if he really wants to be there. What's he going to do? Sit home and pick his asshole? What's he got to do? He gets to put the suit on. He gets to sit there and read the news and talk. Well, there are plenty of people you can point to that have taken Mm. their lucky break, Uh even in news and broke it in two. Go ahead. You want to name a few? You want to just keep it vague? There was a woman. Remember the name Paula Zahn? 
Wasn't she married to General Zahn from Superman? <laughs> oh, that was General Zod. That's right. You're talking about Paula Zod, I thought. That was his wife. <laughs> no, she uh, was a newswoman. Everybody was talking about her. She was the next big thing. And uh, she got into some kind of a contract dispute, and they weren't uh, going to pay her enough money, and so she left. And now on Sunday mornings, if you tune over to, I think it's A&E, or maybe it's even PBS, She's interviewing, you know, some guy who plays the cello. Hey, <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> that's hard. So, you don't want to yeah. do that. I hear you. Jesus. Mm. Playing the cello. That's <laughs> fucked up. Hey, I got to show. I don't know if you saw The Bachelorette last night. I won't give you any spoilers. I didn't. I didn't look at the show yet. I see it in advance, so I couldn't wait to play this for you. It was on last night, The Bachelorette. This won't ruin anything. You know, I don't want to ruin the suspense. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this character, dude, this guy, Rick, his name's Rick. White dude. I mentioned that because The Bachelorette is a black woman, and she's very, every minute she's, she's like, mixed you know, race. Mixed race, but she goes, I grew up in my community. I was the only black person, and nobody was. And I'm no. I didn't well, feel seen. They decided I was a black person. Excuse she was me? like, they told me I was black, and then I had to answer all these questions about my hair. <laughs> yeah, and then she said, I didn't feel seen, and I didn't feel heard. Oh my god! Come on, I went walking baby. with Beth yesterday. Every minute she goes, I'd say to her, "Honey, I um, I made the bed." She goes, "Good, I feel seen, and I feel heard." <laughs> <laughs> she was throwing that in my face every minute. I thought that was pretty funny. But anyway, it's all very heavy, but I only bring up the Bachelorette. This fucking guy, Rick, he's telling her. I don't remember her, which one Rick is yet. He's a funny looking little white dude with big bug eyes. Okay. Does that help you? No. <laughs> he, he, he stuck his head out of a table in order to get oh, her attention. Oh, the guy who he, was in the table? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I When I saw that, I was like, this dude, he's, he's out of here first thing, but she seems to like his comedy. He dressed up like a table. Yeah, whenever they do that, I think they're going to be, uh, you know, out of there the first night, and they yeah. always keep those guys or women. Yeah, I mean, if, if I wanted to win your heart and I dressed up as a table, I think you'd get rid of me. I do. I yeah, really do. You know, or a girl comes in as a dragon, you know, or a whale or whatever the, <laughs> yeah, the <right>. shark. <laughs> Porpoise. <laughs> dolphin. Uh, yeah, so uh, anyway, this guy, there's a moment on The Bachelor, if you're going to win her heart, you got to open up to her. The whole show, she's hocking everybody. I got to have a man who opens himself up emotionally. I got to have it. And what that means is you got to tell this woman something fucked up that happened to you. Something that makes you cry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to tell, oh, you opened up to me. I love you. You know, right away, they fall in love with you. More fucked up shit happened to you, the more they love you. Like, I'd be like, oh, my mother used to wash my underpants when I shit my underpants. And she'd wash them in the sink in front of everyone. Oh, my God, you just opened up to me. Would Thank you take you this road? Thank you for being so vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I really yeah, blah, saw blah. something in him tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be like, hi, my name is Howard, and um, I just want you to know that I feel like there's a spark between us. But I had trouble being vulnerable and open, so I want to tell you a few things. Oh, please do. Yes, um, many times... um. My mother would uh, embarrass me in front of my friends and 
tell them write me notes and say that my my room wasn't clean enough and then she'd hit me with a hanger <laughs> oh, oh thank you for opening up you're my you're one of my favorites now you can so this tell dude, me anything yeah 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 so it was rick's turn to open up this motherfucker you've never heard anything like it this motherfucker <laughs> starts in with the vocal fry i didn't hear i never used to hear too many guys with my vocal fry and what is vocal fry it's this the dog ain't like this uh, now, psychiatrists will tell you women do this, and I suppose men too. They want to seem more intelligent. I read an article about it. When uh, you know they don't have voices like that, they have normal voices, but they start to talk like this. Uh, and I never heard of this thing until The Bachelorette. Honestly, this vocal fry—it is so horrible. And everyone that now this guy's got it so bad. That at times, I don't even know what he's saying. <laughs> he, at one point, he was like, my father cheated on my mother. And she's like, oh, that's so, you know. I'm like, so what? what, are he, what is he, a fucking frog? And the story, this, now you're going to have to hang with this. The sadder the story gets, the worse the vocal fry gets. It's like, oh. It starts out like, yeah, and then it goes, (laughs) you never heard it. Now, here's the kicker to the story. I'm going to set it up for you. By the time I get to the third clip, the bachelorette gets caught up in his rhythm, and she starts him with, uh, she gets vocal fry, too. She catches him. It's a big concert. By the end of this, it's like, uh, uh. Uh, oh, uh, uh, oh, uh. It's like a Beatles song. <laughs> it's like Obla oh, Diabla Da. Goes on. Life goes on. It's all one long. I'm going to play it for you now. Here we go. This is Rick the Bachelor contestant talking to the Bachelorette. He was a. Uh, I think the toughest thing I had was last 10 years of his life. He was pretty depressed and just like not happy. I think, like, the biggest challenge of my life has been, like, when you see the people you love or the people you care about, like, deeply, <laughs> and you can't help them. So that was, that was like, probably one of my toughest challenges in life, except in that. It's been very hard for me to talk about certain things in my past. Give it for good luck. But with her, I feel so comfortable with just open. I turned to my wife during this. I said, am I, am I losing my hearing? You know, I'm getting older. She goes, no, I don't know one fucking thing he's saying. All I hear is, I was going to say, did you turn up the volume? Because uh, now you've got to jack it up so you can even try to hear a word or two. Like she should have said, there's something wrong with you. Do you need to excuse yourself? Did you did you swallow a bunch of gravel earlier? But you'll see no, by the you end. Swallow a frog. <laughs> yeah, because he's doing all the talking now. Well, I'm telling you, this vocal fry is more contagious than COVID nineteen because uh, <laughs> that she catches it at the end. You can see. All right, so here, let's continue on. All right, he's still talking about his, his yeah, story of woe. Not catching very much of it now. Yeah, here you go. So basically what happens, like two weeks before Christmas, my parents went out for shopping. Uh, my dad left his phone on the desk and he got a text message and me just being, I think, 17 and curious, opened up his phone. 
and I saw a text uh, that was basically from a woman and made me think. <laughs> and so after about a day, I decided to tell my mom about it. Three days after Christmas, my mom wakes me up at like 6 a.m. and um, tells me that my brother's at my grandparents and tells me that we have to move out. And I'm like, I'm like, she's going to dump his ass. This fucking guy is so fucking boring. Even yeah, you can't story listen to that what, the rest of your life, can you? Uh, yeah, I mean, can you imagine? I had a tough day at work, honey. Oh, really? Tell me about it. Well, my boy, la, 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 Imagine the rest of your life you're locked in a house with this fucking guy. I'd rather live alone. Hold on a second. I, I have to hop on my other lily pad. This one's sinking. <laughs> I don't know. You know, and this guy, and what's his tale of woe? His parents broke up. Dude, half the marriages in the, in, in, in the world end up in divorce. Dude. Who fucking cares? Isn't you, he Froggy? saying Dude. he's the reason because he told his mom about the text? Uh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good for you. <laughs> good for you. You know what? Maybe you should be with this guy. Keep going. Unfortunately, he had you on my mom. And they split Honestly, I blame. And, and, and my mom and I moved out to a new lily pad. We were. We were <laughs> myself at first. My dad. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And now I'm remembering. This fucking guy. He went through his dad's phone and ratted. He's a rat. He ratted out. He ratted out his old man to. <laughs> mom, what is it? I just went through dad's phone. Yes. And he's fucking another woman. That's impossible. Who would fuck your father beside me? <laughs> That's breaking the bro code big time. The old man's like, what kind of son are you? What about the bro code, motherfucker? We're both dudes. What do you think? Look at what you're doing. Now, yeah, Do. look at what you've done. Do. <laughs> what are you, a woman? <laughs> My father would be like, what are you, crazy? I thought you were a man. You have no penis? What's wrong with you? You told your mother about my affairs? I didn't know, Dad. I didn't know such thing as a bro code. You idiot. I told you not to be stupid, you You know how parents always sit the kid down, like, you know, in a divorce, and they go, look, kids, it's not your fault. This time it was like, this it's your fault. It's your fault. You're so Mom, yes. I smelled dad's fingers. I smelled pussy on his fingers. Was it my pussy? No. <laughs> what? You smell my fingers? And you smell my side poon? You ruined my side poon. <laughs> he yeah, so he's like telling her now. She's sitting there like listening to the thing. The story is basically, you know, yeah, he he fucking ratted out the old man. Here, listen. It's been something that I, like, I struggled with for a long time, but I realized, like, uh, I can't take responsibility for my choices. Last 10 years of his life, like, uh, he was very depressed. Oh, uh, what an annoying he guy. He called me in a work day on a Thursday. I called him after I got off work. Um, he didn't answer, but he texted me right back saying, hey, you know, I'm just trying to catch my breath. A friend checked in on him and found him just, like, on the ground. Um, he was gone. Yeah. Did he kill himself? And I know deep down, like, my dad 
Till the day die, I'm still blaming me because I blew the whistle, unfortunately. Holy mackerel. It's hard to he feel bad alone. for him. Because <laughs> yeah. he got him it's... thrown out of the house. <laughs> because of you, I killed myself. <laughs> no wonder he's dressing up like a table. You Who does it? Like Mom, yes. I saw Dad buying jewelry. Oh, probably for my Christmas gift. I don't think it was for you, honestly. Uh, you have big, thick cankles. I don't think uh, this it was like a ring, a... and it doesn't fit you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was very, very horrible when I found out and told my mother my dad was cheating. I was so upset that I did not eat my flies that night for dinner. <laughs> Uh-oh, I have to leave. Here comes a snake to eat me. I'm very low on the food chain. This guy, yeah, he went and told Mom. Uh, Mom, why is Dad buying rubbers when you've uh, had a hysterectomy? <laughs> what? I ha of course I had a hysterectomy. After you kids, they cleaned me out. Well, Dad was buying rubbers. I was with him the other day. He, I saw him in the pharmacy. My dad, I had a towel on him. He was buying rubbers. And I got to tell you, you got to come up with a sad fucking story if you're going to get a rose, because then she yeah, thinks you you're holding back. Yeah, you better have tragedy in your life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and and then the dude tells her, and then she starts with the vocal cry. And I'm telling you, it was like, uh, 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 listen, listen to this. You with me still? Mm-hmm. When we go through these, like, really difficult things, you definitely get these wounds. But I do think that everything that you've been through and those wounds and those scars that you have are also why you are, like, this amazing person that you are today was unreal and having a, a, a glimpse of that like normal life these I, two get married they're gonna have little tadpoles uh, together uh, 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 can't uh, roll the fact that I couldn't fall in love with you that's a conversation like I, yeah. <laughs> I know what my gut is saying and I just am gonna enjoy every moment with you I get and just look forward to the next time I get another moment with you and the next next Today was one of my favorite days. I could be my complete self with you. I feel like you have done everything. You possibly Didn't Lurch always go, uh, uh Mr. Adams. Mr. Adams. Yeah. <laughs> Howard, where's your father? He went to get McDonald's, but he's been gone for three hours. Uh, is that unusual? Uh, yeah, kind of, Mom. Why don't you wake up and smell the coffee? Must be a really long line. <laughs> I, I told my uh, mother that my dad used to spend three hours at McDonald's, and then uh, he uh, got a divorce. So I've always blamed myself. I told my mom that dad would come home from work late with jizz stains on his pants <laughs> and it was really bad really bad and the bachelor's like wow you really opened up to me you 
you've done everything from ruining your parents' marriage to killing your father. I have to say, that's quite remarkable. That's made you the man that you are. The wonderful, incredible man that you are. (laughs) That's nothing. One time I emailed my mom all of the different porn sites my father was on. I got into his uh, laptop. (laughs) That guy got to break with you. (laughs) You're so wonderful. Oh, my God, what a man you are. You're like the FBI. I feel like I'm dating the FBI, the way you investigate your father and then tell mom. One time I said to my mother, why does dad have lipstick on his penis? And she got suspicious. Finally. (laughs) I found my dad's dick pic and it destroyed us as a family. Oh, my God, I have to marry you. Forget it. Tell the other guys to go home. You're fucking opening up I love how he me. was dramatic. Yeah. Uh, text. Uh, and it was... <laughs> from uh, his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Mr. Adams. <laughs> to make me feel seen. And See, that... you, made me feel, you made me feel seen. She's big on that. She says that every minute. You made me. It's like her blah, blah, blah. Every minute. Yeah. She says, when I was a little girl, I was never seen. No one saw me. I was never seen. And he's like, I see you. I see you. I see you. I swear. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, you made blah. me feel seen. Blah, blah, blah. You'd win on the Robin, you just got to do that whole, your dad uh, oh, fiddling please. with your privates. You're going to fucking, <laughs> every guy will marry you. <laughs> Mom. I said, Dad has blonde pubic hairs on his face, and you're a brunette. (laughs) I believe your bush is completely dark. That's right. (laughs) My bush is dark. (laughs) Uh, It's really important for me. I would like to ask you, Rick, if uh, you would accept the service. Yes, please. Yes, please. Correct. Will you accept this? It has been an absolutely wonderful day. Yes, it has. Uh, (laughs) The two of them deserve each other. That's what I said to my wife. I go, they deserve each other. Uh, Well, you know, they say that's what happens when you're really into somebody. You start to mirror their behavior. (laughs) Yeah. So she's Uh, croaking like a frog, too. Yeah, my wife goes around telling dick jokes all day. <laughs> Beth doesn't like the word dick, I learned. We were walking and I said something about, hey, honey, my, you know, I was being like a little sexy time, you know, and uh, I said, hey, my dick. And she goes, your dick? <laughs> oh, I was like, haven't I said that before, my dick? And she got like turned off. She goes, I don't even want to walk with you. You said my dick. Oh, yeah. Well, what would she prefer you call it? Did you find out? I, well, I didn't ask. I just said, okay, my cock. Oh, I don't know what, was that better? She, I think she likes peen better, like peen <laughs> or schween, you know, like something a little less threatening. Something a little funny sounding. Yeah, yeah we, uh, I got uh, a little uh, sexy time last night with Beth, actually. Even though you said dick. Yeah, well, so you know, everything. that I, bad. I, I, I think I washed the dishes after dinner, so I was back in her good graces. I've been real good, Very you know. Good. I've been, she feels seen. Yeah, like like the other day, like on Sunday, she was like, "Hey, um, uh, I'm gonna go up and make the bed," and I ran upstairs and made the bed. You know, that goes a long way in my house. 
you know, little gestures. Well, it goes a know. long way in everybody's house. Yeah. You know, I was come over. I, hearing something where, you know, they're trying to teach men that they have to, you know, do things earlier in the day if you want sex later at night. And there so you, go. you see the Thank woman you, saying mistress. things Thank like, I Thank love you. those little notes he he texts me in the middle of the day and yep. asks me whatever. I don't even know what it is. But yeah, you know, it pays yeah, off. You got to yeah. do that kind of stuff. I love that guys have to like. Everything we do is just angling to get laid, even if we're married. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's crazy. Like, yeah, I wrote a beautiful note to my wife. Oh, really? Yeah, I want to get laid. But, uh, <laughs> no, but after dinner, I said, to her, hey, you know, I'm ready to go if you are. And she was like, okay, but yeah, you know, if we do it, I can't sleep in the same bedroom with you tonight. I said, whoa, 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 what's what, up? What's what do you mean? I, is that a new thing? We oh no, we always sleep in the same bed together. So I said, "What do you mean?" So she said, "If we take time now, this was after dinner. If we take time now to bang, I gotta then do all my cat rounds after we bang, and um, it'll get so late. I know you, you fall asleep. Oh, so I don't want to. Yes, so she didn't want to wake me up. So she goes, "You got to." I said, "Wait a second. I don't take that long." With you, <laughs> I could knock. I could wrap this thing really up in ten won't minutes. Knock you off schedule. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when when did I become, uh, you know, Herculean and start, you know, lasting for? I, I mean, I take a look at her. And I'm practically done. I don't need much with a woman, especially her. Your schedule will hardly be interrupted. Right. <laughs> I could, I, you know, it doesn't, if it, God bless me, it doesn't take me long to get an erection. It's like one, two, three, it's there. I just but have to the squeeze whole her act, butt. Come on, that's going to slow her down when she has to go do her chores. She knows get that. that I, I go, out of your system. I got to say something. I go the right amount of time, guys. Like, I'm not in there forever. Like, women get really aggravated and they dry up. You got to just kind of do your business and get out, you know. Make sure she's feeling good, and then when she's feeling good, you just let it go, because they're done. That's it. They don't. They, they're not looking to foot like a porn. Porn will fucking warp you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean, Robin. So uh, I said, well, Honey. I don't think that every woman's exactly the same and needs the exact short amount of time that you're giving <laughs> well i know what my wife needs that's for sure and uh, at <laughs> well, least i think i do. should know <laughs> yeah and i'm telling you i didn't see how her scat cat schedule was going to be off the, the more than total seven minutes for the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> so sure enough we finished up quick and uh i looked at the clock i go honey she goes you know what you're right i didn't realize how early it was it was like six twenty-seven. So you weren't going to be asleep by the time she finished. Yeah. So I, you know, I uh, showered, you know, with a little uh, handheld, uh, you know, I'd already showered. So I just like wash off my uh, my area, (laughs) balls and peen, you know, I do a nice cleanup. I'm pretty minty fresh powder yourself and put yourself to bed <laughs> well yeah no actually i went online and played chess with some dude oh i hadn't done that in ages i was on the internet chess club playing some dude quick uh, two minute games and i did pretty well actually i was starting to think i was good but then i realized the guy just probably sucks <laughs> we played five quick games and i won four of them 
He kept oh. challenging me, thinking like, hey, you know what? You're not that good. I'll beat you. But it felt good to play a little bit. And then uh, put myself to bed and waited for Beth. I was watching Narcos, and then when she walked in, we switched over to uh, our other show. I forget the name of it. It's on uh, HBO Max, second year of it. Anna Kendrick was the first year, and now it's a uh, some dude. It's a, Let's take a little look. You would like it, I think. No, I wouldn't. I yes, didn't you watch would. the Anna Kendrick. <laughs> oh, you didn't? You didn't like that? Okay. I don't recall watching an Anna Kendrick show, so yeah. it probably didn't interest Called me. Called Love Life. When I read Love Life. Love Life. Right. It's yeah, good. that would make me go right by it. Watch, watch the second season. It's good. It stars this um, guy who gets divorced and he's dating. Very Sex in the City-ish. Really? Uh, yeah, I think you'd like it. Skip over I'll season one. Go to look, season. But take I'm a not look. really interested in just people falling in love. No, I bet you'll love this. It's very, mm-hmm. very good. You know, I know you're always looking for something to watch. So this is something. Well, I think I'm into I, Condor I, right now. I didn't realize it has two seasons. I'm like, oh, oh I don't this is that. great. Yeah, I was reading, jeez, there's so much to talk about here. I got nervous, you know, I love that Peloton so much. I'm always on it. It's the only exercise I really get. And then they were saying, um, oh, Peloton stock fell, but it's that's it. And, you know, well, they, it's not they, going out of business, but no. it has taken a great bath. You know, that stock was over $200 at one time. And what is and, it now? Uh, it's about fifty. Jesus. Well, you know, it stands. I was thinking about it because I'm, I'm a, I love the product, but I was thinking about the, uh, you know, with the pandemic, their business went berserk. Yeah. You know, their business went berserk, and, and everyone was like, "Wow, we're going to be locked up inside. What, what am I going to do for exercise? I, you know, I used to go to Soul Cycle or this one, and then all of a sudden uh, they had this product." Peloton where you, you know, and so the thing went through the roof. They, at one point they couldn't even manufacture the bikes fast enough. They had to buy up a whole manufacturing company just to get this, to get the job done. So that's how fast you know, they were growing. It was crazy. Yeah. Yes. So I'm sure like now they're like, yeah, hey assholes, we can't keep up this, you know, they probably will have to start another pandemic in order to get those levels up again. <laughs> Maybe they were responsible. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they should go to China and start a Wuhan <laughs> flu. Uh, but that's capitalism man if you don't grow every year you're a failure even if you don't like if you have a surge you know they've had a couple of stumbles they came out with this treadmill no good huh uh kids would wind up under the bottom of it you know like they'd hit that belt it didn't have a thing on the end of it oh and so that belt would grab your kid and (laughs) put it right under and so that wasn't (laughs) good and uh, so they had to take that out of production for a while and fix it. Oh, I didn't know and that. So my, that hit the price. And then I was wondering um, why my parents bought one of those treadmills to <laughs> hoping that I get caught up under it. Yeah, but come on. I mean, and then so, uh, they um, brought the treadmill back. Then they lowered the price of the bike. Now, this was supposed to be some, um, you know, exclusive kind of luxury thing that not everybody could get that was the whole thing uh, and then they were like nah, let's make a bike for everybody and i don't know that i that's like that over real well 
<laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know how to run that company. Like, I'd be like, I don't know. Yeah. So My they're father, trying man. to figure out what they do now that the pandemic isn't fueling all their sales to keep people involved in in the bike. And I heard that they had done something they never did before. They you can pause the live class. Yeah, I told you that yesterday. Yeah, so that's, that's a new. new. That's a brand yeah. new feature. Well, I tell you, when you're a kid, you think your parents are the smartest people in the world. I don't, I don't know that you did, but I did. I always thought my dad was like the smartest guy in the world because he would constantly berate me and tell me he was the smart. You know, he would be like, "You're an idiot. You don't know this. Yeah, you I don't didn't know that." My parents, they said, "Hold uh, enough to be stupid, you moron." <laughs> but I, you know, the first sort of crack in that armor where I started to realize my dad doesn't know everything was about bicycles. I told oh, you yeah? the story. Yeah, I told you this story <laughs> once a long time ago, but my father had a recording studio. And, you know, in the recording business, you're only as good as your equipment. You only go so far in the record because there are constant innovations. You know, one day you ask Paul McCartney, one day you have a tape recorder and the next day you have digital and then blah, blah, blah. So with my father's business, unless they constantly upgraded the recording studio, the business would go away. So it costs a lot of money to buy this stuff. So my old man went around looking for a company to invest in his recording studio. And my old man, he's coming home every day all fucking bummed out. I don't know. So one day he comes home, he's almost smiling. My dad didn't smile much. He's kind of like Lurch. Like he, you know, he'd be like, but one day he was almost smiling and I'm like, Oh, mm, something good must have happened. Must have a girlfriend, you know? And uh, it turned out, he goes, I'm going to let, there was some company he found a bicycle company, bicycle company, and they were going to invest. And in turn, for buying up some of my dad's business, they were going to give him stock in that bicycle company. Oh. And my father's sitting there at the table all proud of himself. He's like, this is unbelievable. First of all, it, it, there is a boom with bicycles. They can't keep them in the stores. You know, it was just around the time when Americans got into the Italian racing bikes. And right. it was, you know, Schwinn was big. Everything was big. And my dad's like, not only did I have stock. And he even, he had pieces of paper with stock. And he's carrying on. I'm like, Jesus, my dad's like a business genius. You know, my mom's all excited. Everyone's, you know, dad's in a good mood. Yeah. Well, well, sure enough, these guys invested. And uh, my father goes, this is so good. He just, you know, he'd get Forbes and they go, look, they're talking about the bicycle industry. You can't stop making money if you make bicycles right now. You know, <laughs> pull in the money. Happy days are here again. Well, it, we, my dad was right. Forbes magazine was right. The bicycle, they couldn't keep these bicycles in store. This company, I swear to you, I don't remember the name. Because I still got PTSD from what happened. <laughs> the old man goes, he went over to where they manufactured the bicycles. And he came home. He wasn't happy. He was like, oh, my God. They don't know what they're doing over there. No wonder they're not selling any bicycles. An idiot could sell a bicycle. No matter. Every bicycle company in the country is selling bicycles. And then he's like, the Consumer Report just came out. They say this is the shittiest bicycle they ever saw. <laughs> like, it was almost like they, they didn't have two tires on the fucking thing. It was like Why the world shitty. Why is he shitty. going to the bicycle? 
manufacturing company after ah. it got the deal. Uh, let me tell you something. You're brave sitting here. You wouldn't be in my house asking that question because I used to ask shit like that. I'd go, hey, Dad, like, why didn't you check this out before? Shut up, you idiot. You don't even have a job. Yeah, I'm seven. I'm seven years old. And you're so fucking smart. Shut up. Because I would ask, I would innocently ask questions and he thought I was doing it to disrupt his life, right, to make him right, uncomfortable. Right. What do you mean? I wish I knew the name of this company. They went out of business so fast. And then I, and then I go, Dad, what, what'd you do with your stock? Shut up. <laughs> the whole thing went bankrupt. My dad had to buy back his, uh, company from them. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And like, you know, it, it was a disaster. And I was like, boy, he didn't know that much. So you know, that he, was the he, end of him getting another company to invest. <laughs> oh, that was over with. And then it ended up costing him money. And I used to go, yeah, and I would say, it's like my parents had to redecorate the house at one point. And I go, whatever happened to that stock? Maybe you could just like paste the walls with it. Sure, you stupid idiot. You moron. He brought, what are you two arguing about? He brought up my stock. Shut up! Sit down! I'm like, dude, what do they have? Square wheels? Where's this bike? <laughs> like, he, I think he got to bring home one of the bikes. It was horrible. I wouldn't even use it. I, I, I don't know how you could fuck up making a bike, but this company did. Wow. And my old man, he goes every day, look at all these bicycle companies. They're making a fortune. And then I'd go, where are you from again? When you say fortune? <laughs> Where'd you grow up? Are you from this country? I don't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah, you, you think your parents are real smart. And then one day it dawns. Like, I thought my mother was a genius because we would sit there and watch TV. And when Liberace came on, she'd go, look, he's a fangola. They Back then, that's what they said. You know, it's not right now. You know, all those kind of derogatory words. But I go, Mom, what are you saying? Liberace's gay. And well, go, they didn't use gay back then, did they? No, no. She would say, you know, all kind of words. But she didn't. She, she. By the way, my mom was very super liberal and gay. Anything. She used to set up my gay cousins on dates with other guys and stuff. And I was always like, never was hung up on you know or hated gay people. But she just but used they, those terms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a word. It was a Yiddish word that people said, you know. And uh, I go, Liberace's Fagala. She goes, of course. I go, Did you know what Fagula was? I, I was starting to know. You know, I go, well, yeah. I, you know, I go, what do you mean? He says he can't find a wife. He's looking for a wife. And I could not figure out how my mother knew this guy was gay. I couldn't figure. I go, God, she's, she's really so intuitive. Meanwhile, you know, it was obvious to the world. I mean, but I was like a boy and I, I looked yeah. up to my mother. And then all of a sudden the crack and the, and, you know, all of a sudden as I got older, you know, She's not so smart. <laughs> you Everyone don't remember knows. the specific day started? I'd like to think it didn't take too long for me to figure out she didn't know, but I, I, I fear that. It was, I was much, I was like, oh my God. I'm, it's like when my kids were little, I used to make a piece of tissue paper disappear, and they thought I was magic, that I knew magic. <laughs> But I would just tell them to turn their head and I'd drop the piece of paper on the floor. They, you know, they, it, like, like, my mother wasn't doing anything great. No. 
Knowing Liberace is gay was an obvious thing, but I thought she was, you know, I really admired her, that she had such a command of human beings and understood the intricacies of their sex life just by looking at them. I was like, this is a very evolved woman. Then I realized she didn't know anything. <laughs> Liberace is gay. Oh, man. Jerry! <laughs> Anyway, so uh, I got nervous with Peloton because I'm on there. I was on there yesterday with my instructor. I, I use two instructors, Peloton Jen, and I use uh, Hannah Corbin. I was on with Hannah Corbin yesterday, and sometimes I told you I, she's so hot and everything, but she likes to talk about her husband. And when I'm like when I'm with her, I like to pretend she's single. It's like what I said to Emily Ratajkowski yesterday. It's like right. you know, do you think it's really a good idea that you put pictures of yourself breastfeeding your baby and Pictures of your husband up on Instagram. We'd like to pretend you're single when we're beating off to you. And she was like, you know, no, I don't think about that. And I'm like, eh, maybe you should. I'm just thinking. You know. She's trying to share her whole life with you. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes we, that's the same with this Peloton instructor. She starts talking about her husband. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what do you, you know? She's wearing a cute outfit. You see her belly. She's a professional dancer. She's wearing... A fucking, uh, uh, like a, what do you call those? Like running, not running pants. I want to call it like a leotard. You can see everything in the mirror behind her. It's great. You know, so you feel like you're with a sexy gal. And then she starts in here. I'll, I'll play it for you. Four, three, downhill in two, one. Take it to the left. <laughs> right now, uh, my hubs is doing... It's, I don't, I don't know who chooses to do these things except for crazy people, <laughs> silly people. Um, but there's a, an ultra happening right now that is you run five miles every four hours for 24 hours. No, thank you. <laughs> She's digging it. I love running, but I don't have that crazy distance in me. <laughs> Mentally, physically, sure. No, not for the husband. 63 cadence, <laughs> but I'll cheer you on. Yeah, that husband, uh, yeah, you know, he's, listen to this guy. He's running five miles every four hours for 24 hours. For 24 hours. hours. <laughs> I was like, and you what know, does he do for a living? And I, yeah, and I, yeah, exactly. What job does he not do so he has time <laughs> to do this? I mean, what, 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 this guy must be, must have a trust fund. First of all, he's got a hot wife. Do. Um, although his wife's got to work at Peloton, so how much money could he have? I don't know. I'm a little concerned about this. But I mean, she's like, my husband, and I'm like, oh, okay, we get it. Your husband could, it fucks you my better hubs. than any of us could. Yeah, my hubs, your hubs fucks you way better than any of us losers could. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet he has a bigger cock than us. And I bet, you know, I can't run five miles every four hours. I get it. He's superior physically. Great. Well, guess what? If you were married to someone else, maybe you wouldn't have to work at Peloton. Maybe you could be retired and just sit at home. <laughs> How's about that? Because the rest of us are working, making a living. But when she'll, she'll talk about her husband. You know, we get it. You're in love. No one cares. Yeah, keep that at home. You got an hour like, with me on this bike. Could you not mention him? <laughs> yeah, like even Beth walks by when I'm doing it, and she goes, well, what's your girlfriend wearing today? 
I go, great tank top, like an orange top. I said, come look. I don't want to look. How's your girl? Let's walk by. How's your girlfriend today? I go, she looks great. Got her hair down instead of in a bun. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, my hubs. Don't tell anyone, but my husband's penis is in me right now. Okay, set your cadence at 67. <laughs> the secret to, maybe maybe the secret to Peloton's success would be if uh, they instruct the instructors not to constantly talk about their husbands. I'm just Let saying. me ask you something. Is there a live class with her now? No, 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 no. They okay. all uh, work without a live class. You can, not with, not with COVID, you know. Some of the country still understands that there's a pandemic. <laughs> Second to last fish in the warm up. In three, two, one, let's go. Fun fact I don't like cookies. Right? No one believes me when I say it until I talk to my husband and confirm that I do not like cookies. <laughs> in five, four, three, two, one, slow it down. Slow it down. Don't worry, I'm slowed down. My hub though loves cookies. So oh, good. if I ever am gifted a plate of cookies, he gets all of them, so he's very happy. Last push. Mm. Three, two, one. Come on. Well, they can't say anything controversial, so they end up telling you stuff. But she's she's actually a really good instructor because for the most part she doesn't talk about her husband and she really uh instructs you what to do on the bike. But I've taken with other uh, other people. Her and Peloton Jen are the two best because they tell you what to do. But every once in a while, they they got to tell you something, and it can't be controversial. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, she could have stopped. As, I, I don't like cookies. She didn't have to throw in that you can validate that with her hubs. <laughs> yeah. Fun fact. I don't like cookies. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> and by the way, my husband and I have perfect bodies. And when we have sex, it looks like Barbie and Ken humping, but with genitals. Remember, not everyone can eat cookies like my hubs. His body turns sugar and fat into abs and jizz, so I'm pretty lucky. All right, slow down now. <laughs> Fun fact, I don't like cookies. <laughs> Thanks for being so revealing. Yeah, hey, you could win The Bachelorette, where you reveal stuff about yourself. <laughs> Hannah Corbett's husband is a U.S. track and field level one and two certified fitness coach. Hmm. That means something? I don't know. <laughs> he was reportedly a Broadway... told me somebody had a PhD in something. I would understand. Yeah, uh, yeah. What? Hey, how do I know <laughs> that? <laughs> he was reportedly a Broadway stage manager before turning to coaching. Mm. All right. Whatever. Uh, but he's a level something. I, I was like, level. I don't understand that. Yeah. It's like me with my dad in the bicycle company. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> here's what i understand i'm gross and our husband's hot that's what i think the best i think that's the bottom line message and i don't need to hear that i know i'm gross you should see me but on you that notice bike. how all of these trainers now are getting titles that are sounding more important than trainer fitness yes. coach level one and two yeah <laughs> it's like that old ku klux klan move uh right. grand klegal <laughs> oh, you're a Grand Kliegel. I didn't know that. <laughs> so level one. level one and two. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I would say, oh, I got to tell you this. This is crazy. I always thought, you know, people who donate their body to science are really fucking awesome. You know, I won't do it because I know sometimes if you donate your body to science, you could end up at a medical school being a cadaver that they work on. And I happen to know for a fact that the medical students make fun of the dude's penises if they're small. <laughs> you won't and, be there, Howard. <laughs> no, I understand. But, you know, I'm famous and I have a legacy. And I got you a small penis. You think they'll penis. say, oh, this is Howard Stern's. We got Howard Stern's body. Uh, yeah. I think there'd be a lot of that. <laughs> and so, you know, I would like to be noble and say, okay, use my body for research. I know they need such things, especially medical science. And, and, and med students do need to practice on dead people. That's the closest they're going to get to operating on something. But I don't need a bunch of little shits. <laughs> who were nerds in high school laughing at me, Robin, when I'm laying there on that fucking table with my, first of all, there's no fluids in my body. My ass is going to be flatter than it is in real life. And there's, it's going to be all wrinkled. Well, they don't stand you up and do a twirl with you to see they, how they, fit I happen work. to know. I happen to know for a fact they flip you over. And then sometimes <laughs> your ass, you know, like when, like, like your ass will stay like, like, like there's no fluid in your ass. So it won't, right, it won't, nothing's it won't, there. It, Right. It's nice and There's flat. There's no roundness, and, you know. It's all flat. Yeah, and like, you know, I could see a dude putting his finger up my asshole and go, ah, look at Howard Stern. I'm fucking fingering Howard Stern's asshole. You know, I just don't want it. And I know you're right. I'm dead. I'm basically just a piece of meat laying there. But, right. you know, my soul is going to be with, with, with in heaven with Jesus. <laughs> you know, You'll be I, looking I down, some... watching them play with you. And I can hear the jokes or like, oh, uh, I guess today we're studying microphallus. <laughs> <laughs> they brought in a, a case. Uh, anyway, I just don't want it. And I, and I realize it's shallow of me. I would love to be the type. that and, and there are so many gracious human beings who leave word in their will. I would like to be a, you, I've you never know. even heard you talk like this. This is amazing. Yeah. I do not want to be donating my body to science. And the reason I bring this up, listen to this story in the newspaper. A World War II veteran. Okay, there was a war you could get behind. Killing fucking Hitler and those fucking fucks who followed him. A World War II veteran, brave guy, donated his body to science for research. They took his body and dissected it in front of a paying crowd at an event called Oddities and Curiosities Expo. They took the dude and they made a paid event out of it and fucked with his body and people got to go there and touch the body. Where uh, the did man, you read this? The man's widow. Where'd we get this from, by the way? We've been talking about this for two days at 6 o'clock in the morning before the show starts and I'm outraged about it. The man's widow was not notified that her husband's body would be autopsied in front of a paying audience at a Marriott Hotel ballroom in Portland. Local of NBC all News. A ballroom. Yeah, a ballroom. Get it? Imagine. Imagine <laughs> me laying there. It's terrible, too, because this is going to. Here, wait, I'll play this for you. This is um, local NBC News affiliate in Portland. It's called King Five. They were all over this story. 
Mr. Saunders ended up in this Portland Marriott ballroom, the centerpiece of an autopsy and dissection before a live paying audience. David Saunders, who lived to age 98, died of COVID, according to his death certificate, meaning a potentially infectious body was dissected at this event in which yeah. people were invited to examine and touch the body. Yeah, that's even worse. I forgot that's that part crazy. of the story. Yes, because you know they can spread COVID that way. Who did they donate this body to? Uh, let's see. Well, by the way, who pays $500 a ticket to go poke some dude's nuts while he's laying there dead? You know, well, that's a morbid. Uh, there is that display that goes all over the country called Bodies. Yeah, well. And those are all cadavers that are, you know, opened know. up and showing you different things. And everybody pays to go in and walk around saw these that. bodies and look inside their organs. I went to that with my kids. I they wanted to too. see it. I and was traumatized. I'm, thinking, I'm like, that's terrible, yeah. too. Well, it was really terrible because then it turned out it was a bunch of Chinese dudes who were poor from China that you were looking at. Right. Yeah. And they were like, I remember I looked at a pair of lungs that were, uh, uh, the the guy who had smoked for 30 years and they showed you they were just black. It was just right. black. And then they showed you healthy lungs that were pink. It was kind of, you know, but this is, but I was also up. with this... these people and they, and the guy did laugh at the penis. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. This <laughs> guy's, guy's a world war two, <laughs> a, a world war two veteran deserves better than that. I'm sorry. And, and the guy, think about the guy, not only did he serve in world war two, but he tried to make the last act he did on earth. Something charitable. That's and right. Of course, people got to ruin it. Instead, a bunch of freaks mutilated his body in front of in front of a whole paying crowd. But I'm just saying, is there an? I mean, don't isn't there? There should be some kind of an organization that takes these bodies and preserves them and makes sure they get used properly. I'm like, who did they donate this body to? This is what I'm saying. You. I think this is a job for you. I think after we retire, you got to go into the, you know, organizing this. This is ridiculous that this is, it was a, it was a total waste, you know, and that, that donation yeah. he made. And this isn't the only dude this happened to. Um, a man donated his mother's body to science to be studied for Alzheimer's research. Instead, her body was sold. Oh, shit. Listen to this. Instead, her body was sold to the army for blast testing. Oh, jeez. I they didn't put know his, that they did that. Yeah, they put his mom's dead body in an army truck and blew it up with an IED to see what would happen. <laughs> I mean, That's I don't mean to. Crazy. I mean, it's horrible. Let me see this. That is science, is it? We know what the body will do if you <laughs> blow it up. Yeah, and I'm not sure why they need to. I mean, okay. And if the military needs to know that, maybe just take a, I don't know, not a person. In 2019, the FBI raided an Arizona, an Arizona, not Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> going to Arizona. I'm going to Arizona. Pick up my honey. In 2019, the FBI raided an Arizona body donation company. See, found, this, this is what I'm saying. There's there's companies. They're trying to make money. They found body parts sewn together Frankenstein style. Ah. <sighs> And they also had a bucket of penises. You see what I'm talking about? This yeah, is what I'm talking about. A bucket of penises. A, 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 a Reuters reporter was able to buy two human heads 
and a spine for 300 bucks each from a company called Restore Life. Uh, there are a lot of weirdos out there. You know what? I'm one Terrible. Of the, I, remember when I was into buying animal skulls and stuff? I used to buy yeah. them from a store. Well, one day somebody said to me, not the store, but some, some person said, I'm selling human skulls. You can put one on your desk. I go, you know, that'd be pretty cool. I'll put a cigar in his mouth. It'll look kind of, you know, like a decoration. <laughs> and I went, wait a second. This is a dude's head. Somebody actually was inside that skeleton. Yeah. He shouldn't be on my desk. It's too creepy. And they were like, oh, he's from China, you know. And I go, even worse. So you tell me because he was a poor communist that I, I he deserves to be have his head on my desk? So I passed. I told you, people are terrible. And, and yeah. all I'm discovering in the pandemic is how terrible people can be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. Um, let's see if we got any other fucked up. I wasn't yeah. donating my body anyway, but now I definitely won't. And and, and don't I, let them get it. And I want <laughs> now people they'll start to donate. stealing bodies. I want people to donate their bodies because I know there's some legit reasons, like you know, medical schools, medical and stuff science, need. and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's a. This isn't a guy who donated his body to science. This was a guy who was just laying in the morgue. Uh, in the United Kingdom, a man working as an electrician in a hospital just pled guilty to 100 acts of necrophilia, including killing and then raping two women in 1987. He accessed the bodies in the hospital's morgues. Wow. So that's fucked up. <sighs> mm. well, I'm never go. going outside again. You stay indoors. You keep telling me stories. <laughs> I keep telling you to stay inside. Um, let me talk to Mike here. We haven't taken any phone calls, and, I, and we do have to break because Paul's going to be on. Paul McCartney. Mike, California, Howard. what's up? Hey, now. Hey. So I was listening to Stranglehold the other day. It's been a while. And I want to know why Ted Nugent is never considered a top guitarist. Ted Nugent's a great guitarist. That's what's even more baffling about the guy, you know, with all the crazy shit he now says. But um, Ted Nugent wrote a lot of good songs. He was definitely cutting edge. I wonder if, he, I don't even think, I don't know if he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but. I don't know. You know, I think most people just can't stand his whole, you know, politics and stuff. So they probably keep him out just for that reason. But he was great. Coming at you, WNBC. Ted Nugent will straggle hole, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, I better tell you what the temperature is so I can hit that post when uh, he starts <laughs> singing. I'm going to say it's about 60-something degrees here in New York. Okay, WN music. That's, uh, that's called a fake post. Like, it's a musical post, what I just right. hit. Now I'm going to go for the vocal. All right, coming at you, WNBC. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Way to ruin a guy's song. <laughs> whole bucket. How did that start in radio? Guys talking over the music. Well, you know, they had to play the music and they wanted to do something. You know, they're sitting yeah. there for four hours. I didn't go into Top 40 Radio. A, I didn't want the pressure of having you hit the post. Some of these dudes, I had friends who went into Top 40 Radio. It was fucking neurotic. Like, it's so fast-paced. 
they'd be talking up, you know, Ted Nugent would be like, 844, quarter to nine. You know, like, like anything. Some of them to tell the to... whole story. You know, last yeah, right. night, I was, <laughs> and they hit and the And you phone. just want to go, shut up. <laughs> Gary, you said you would never consider Ted Nugent for the Rock and Roll Hall of Gary votes, but I don't think yeah. you would consider him because, you see, a lot of people are well, pissed off at him. what's that got to do with no, the music? No, it's, it's not the music thing. Uh, it's just, like, not my cup of tea. You know what I mean? Like, I, for me... He like had Gary! a moment when I was in high school, a couple songs, but you I don't, don't think really he, have like his a, body of work. It's not good enough. I don't think he had a long career, and again, it's just not my kind of music. He is a really good guitar player, though. I mean, let's give the man his due. And, and he I mean, was I like the lead singer doing that. What? He was a lead singer playing like a badass. It isn't like he wasn't doing just one thing. Yeah, you know, it's like me when I um. I can cut my toenails and talk on the phone at the same time. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> I've but got he that. He had a, lo- a large and loyal following, didn't he? Oh yeah, terrible Ted. He would come out in a loincloth. You know, he'd, 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 he'd awesome. like have a he'd have his bow and arrow on stage. It was a whole thing. <laughs> Gary might be right. If you need that many props, if you come out in a loincloth, maybe you oh, can get in the rock That's like now you're going to denigrate the prop comedians. Yeah. They're not yeah. real comedians. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Hey, like not me. Though, you got but... props on stage and you're a rock band. You're not really rocking. I should like call Ted big... Nugent and go, hey, Ted, I'm really sorry to report this. Baba Booey is keeping you out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're I'm, not his I'm not, I'm not keeping him out because he's never been Gary! nominated. He's never All been right, nominated. I have not, I'm not... But like I, the the two songs of his I know are Cat Scratch Fever and uh, Wang Dang Sweet Poon Tang. Those are like the songs Wang Dang I know. Sweet Poon Tang, Cat Scratch Fever, and what about uh, Cat Scratch Doggy Fever? Dog? No, Doggy Dog. <laughs> doggy Dog. Dog. Come on, Doggy Dog. Doggy Dog. What are you saying? Doggy Dog. Doggy Dog. What? <laughs> what are you saying? The fuck he had a saying? song. He's got a song on Cat Scratch Fever that I believe is called Dog Eat Dog. Oh, Dog Eat Dog. All right. I just didn't know what the hell you were saying. Dog Eat Dog. That's all I heard you. Ball, ball, Dog Eat Dog. Dog Eat Dog. <laughs> Coming at you, Cat Scratch Fever, Mr. Ted Nugent, WNBC. That's right. 64 degrees. That's 10 degrees more than 54. And... It's quarter to nine, eight forty-five, and <laughs> and didn't I use Catch Scratch Fever in private parts? I remember doing that. I think I did. Great song. Ball, doggy dog. Ball, 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 ball. You did on the record right here. Yep. There it is. There I am. Side four. Cut four. Side four. Side four. What is he saying? Side four? Yeah. I got the special edition uh, two records on special blue vinyl. Who knew? I I don't even have that. You do. Do I? How do I have that? How do you know I have that? Because I remember... they sent a ton of them, and we get, I don't know if you kept it, but it was given to me. All right. I didn't get one. You want 
want one? <laughs> <laughs> Evidently, there's a, what are you going to do with that? I didn't get one. Jack likes you one. <laughs> All right, we're going to send you over 100. You're going to sit just, there with them. Just say that. And I don't want one. <laughs> <laughs> she just wants you to know she was overlooked. Uh, all right. Anyway, Robin, um, there you go. Hey, Gary let me take Gilabicio. a break. I'm excited always to talk to Paul McCartney. You know that. I, I, I opened up the show with a 15-minute reason why Paul McCartney might be the most important dude in the world. And, uh, and you know what? You can't really debate it. Do. You can't really debate it. When I, when I lay out the facts, it's pretty fucking convincing. Really. Maybe the most important man in music? Absolutely that. But he might also be the most important man in the world. Okay, we'll ask him yeah. if he feels that way. <laughs> I feel that way. Never mind what he feels. <laughs> All right. That was my musical influence. My my dad singing "Never Walk Alone." That's uh, that's why I never went into music. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was the kind of music you were surrounded by. Yeah, Paul's dad, Paul McCartney's dad, played piano, and yeah, my dad didn't. So there you go. That's the difference. Sometimes that can be all the difference in the in the world. Actually, I thought I'd play a little Foo Fighters, Learn to Fly, because uh, Paul inducted Foo Fighters into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame recently. Yeah, I just was reading that they're going to do a movie, The Foo's. Every is one of right? them is going to be in this movie. They And Dave gonna... wrote it. And well, there's uh, another... they're all going to star in it. There's another reason Paul is one of, is, as my my estimation, the most important man in the world. Because think of the movie Help, that started that whole movement of rock videos, musicians doing music and movies. He did it all. Everybody else has to bow to the man. When he talks, you listen. Like I said this morning, uh, Paul's getting set up, getting his mic. Ready to talk about the book. New book is called uh, The Lyrics. Interesting book, man. I loved it. It's all about Paul's take on a bunch of songs he wrote. About 150-something songs he talks about. And it's filled with, um, oh gosh, all kinds of memorabilia and pictures. A lot of stuff Linda took. Linda was a smart woman. When Paul was writing a lot of those songs, you know what she did? She grabbed the lyrics when they were writing it, and he put, and she made a scrapbook for him. And I'll tell you what, a lot of the early Beatles stuff, the boys didn't save their um, they didn't save the lyric sheets that they would scribble on. Yeah, I remember a story that Paul told, I think, where he heard from somebody who had some of their original lyrics. He was just right. working in the studio, and he collected them. Yeah. But Linda was smart. She said, "Listen, I'm going to save all this stuff. You, yeah, you they write, should be saved. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You get you. You know, you start writing band on the run, dude. I'm putting this in the scrap. But anyway, <laughs> hey, Paul, uh, Paul McCartney, probably Good the morning. greatest. Not the probably the greatest living, uh, greatest living songwriter of all time. Uh, this is him. Let me take a look at him. You hear me, okay, there Paul? I hear you. Yeah, I'm not answering to that." Uh, intro you know yes <laughs> thank not, you i am not even, in fact the greatest you are you are the greatest uh -huh. and i said oh, to hi. robin this morning the reason i take you so seriously the fact that i lived in the same time frame that you live people years from now will be like oh my god that person was alive when paul mccartney was alive i mean the albums <laughs> you know I, i'm just talking 
let's not even go into your solo stuff for a minute. The albums, the Beatles put, I mean, albums, not just songs. What is the greatest Beatles album of all time? Me and my buddy, I said, hey, Paul's coming on. We got into this thing like everybody does, but he goes, Abbey Road is the greatest uh, Beatles album of all time. I go, wait a second. You're forgetting the White Album. You're forgetting Meet the Beatles. And how groundbreaking. And then, then we go, oh, yeah, but what about Revolver? What about Rubber Stall? What about a magical mystery tour? It's what is, Paul, settle it right now. What is the greatest Beatles album of all time? Yeah, I don't know. I've got the same problem as you. You know, we did a lot of good stuff. And um, each one was so different. I think that's what makes it difficult to judge. Um, Revolver seemed to me to be a big turning point. Um, I just, I just felt like we really were, you know, walking up this staircase at that point, you know. Um, so yeah, but I can't tell. I don't know. You know, the book, I love the book. The book is called Lyrics. I was just complimenting Linda before you came on. She was smart. I realize now with all the artwork you have in there, pictures and musical lyric sheets, Linda was smart. She said, I'm going to save some of these. When you write a song, Paul, I'm going to put it in a scrapbook for you. Mm-hmm. So you know what? When you're writing it, you're like, well, who the hell's going to save this piece of paper? But it was smart, wasn't it? I know. Yeah, we never thought about it. Um, we would only use them to when we were writing and then in the studio to just remember the lyrics. And then we'd walk away once we were finished and we'd leave them there. Right. And uh, there was one particular guy who <laughs> thought, I should collect these and keep safekeeping. It was like years and years later, I'm taking my daughter Mary through the British Museum Library because she was at school and I wanted to tell her about the library experience because when I was at school, it kind of helped a bit, you know, sort of essays and so So I'm taking her through there. And in one of these cases, next to like James Joyce and Shakespeare, all these people, there's, there's one of my lyrics yesterday. And it was this guy. He wow. collected it and then sort of loaned it to the museum. So, yeah, we thought nothing of them, you know, and just, you know, would have thrown them away. But as you say, and then Linda would see them and think, oh, I'll save these. And yeah. So she That's did. great. What a gift she left you. Where are you now? Is this your home that I'm looking at? Or are you no, at a studio? this is my office in London. Ah, I'm in nice. my office in uh, Soho Square. In but you have, you have a separate office outside of your home. I would think you would just keep your office yeah. in your home. No. What do you do in the I like, office? I like the home to be the home and no recording studio, no office, nothing. And you've got to go to the office. Did I ever ask school. you, you keep instruments in your home, um, uh, right? I mean, in other words, if I went yeah. to your house, there'd be a piano. And so, Did I tell you when I interviewed yeah. Elton John, he, he said to me, I do not keep a piano in my house. I never have. I only play. Uh, that seems mind-blowing to me. Does that not yeah. seem unusual to you? That well, Elton I mean, then it's, then it's his sanctuary. Then, you know, at least he can just forget about it i get that you know but i've I've always got one there in case i want to write something you know and um yeah it, it, you know i like them as well I, i'm happy to have them there 
So yeah, you, uh, I, I pretty much got an instrument nearly everywhere I go. You know, like I've got a guitar in in uh, in the office we're in. On a, I'm in, and then there's one on the top floor where there's a piano. And so, do you yeah, play cool. it every day? Will you do it every no. day? Will you? You won't. No. No, just when I'm in the mood or when I've got a bit of time, you know, or uh, when I fancy it. I don't, you know, I don't uh, go and try and write a song every day. But sometimes you just get a little idea or sometimes it's late at night and you've had a little drink and you yeah. wander over and you make these terrible demos of <laughs> <laughs> this old drunken uncle that is a great idea i'm not I quite love, that bad but uh yeah i love your whole notion in the new book the book is called lyrics and i first of all i love the idea that your memory of all things mccartney is not really all that solid but yet you say when i hear a song if you play a song for me that I did, I, that will bring back my memory. I can remember everything mm. that went around that song, how I wrote mm. it, what I was thinking about. And that's the concept of the um, book. And it, mm. for me, it was great as a, as a fan of yours because these are the kinds of questions I want answered. But I loved particularly you talk about uh, the song Confidante and you go, Confidant, should say, um, mm. the guitar is like a woman. Now, I never heard this. Like, Billy Joel has said to me, when he looks at the piano, it looks like a shark biting his fingers. He, 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 he almost <laughs> hates the piano. But you say about the guitar in the book, it's like a woman. You cradle it, and when you compose, yeah. you're telling her your secrets. And the piano, you say, you push away. Yeah. And I never looked at it that way. It's yeah, fascinating. It's uh... You know, the guitar was the first one. Was, I mean, I had a piano in my house that my uh, my dad used to play. Um, but the first thing that was mine was the guitar. So it was a very precious thing for you, as anyone who's, you know, ever had their first guitar knows. Um, it becomes something very precious. And... Uh, yeah, with that particular guitar that you're talking about, I talk about in the book. Um, it's a real nice Martin guitar, and uh, I was it was just leaning um, in the corner of the room, and I just looked at it and thought, I've been too busy to even play that guitar, and so uh, I just thought, well, let me let me tell the guitar about how I feel, you know. So I just started talking to the guitar, you know. You used to be my under-the-staircase friend. Well, and that's because that literally was true, you know, in the little house we had. The best place for me to go and uh, not be heard was underneath the staircase, you know. And there's something very intimate about you. You're, you're my underneath-the-staircase friend. I um, love that. I, I, I yeah. never looked at an instrument that way. Of course it would be that way to you. I mean, first of all, the guitar yeah. liberated you. It helped you. But you're really talking to your guitar. Uh, yeah. It, 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 it is. It's like, the, it's like the intimate relationship between a man and a woman. Yeah. The it's, other thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very special. Let's say the shape, like you, you pointed out, you know, is very womanly. Uh, yeah. And the fact that you kind of cradle it. So, uh, and, you, you know, you tell it all your secrets. Because, 
you know, often, and I know this is true, like, of John and I, I, I think most people, you know, who write songs, um, if you're having a bad day or if you have an argument with someone or you're just a bit pissed or something, um, you can pick up your guitar, you can kind of get away from the world, find a very quiet place and start strumming on your guitar. And immediately you start to feel a little bit better. And then if you're lucky, you've got the time, you can start making a song that makes the situation better. Um, you know, like I wrote the song For No One. And I remember that was that kind of thing. You know, we'd, we'd had a, uh, my girlfriend at the time was Jane Asher. Um, and we're on holiday together and we'd had a little bit of a, you know, not, not major thing, but a little bit of a disagreement. And I was feeling a bit sort of low. So I sort of went off and, um, started, you know, on your eyes, I see nothing. Um, you know, I just started to put my feelings, uh, into a song through the guitar. And it's kind of nice because once you finish it, it's like you've had a psychiatric session and you've told all your secrets and, wow. and now you feel much better. You've got rid of it, you know? Yeah, you know. Into, really but into something nice, you know, into something you can then go, oh, here's all my feelings in a bundle. Like, let's record it. Yeah, I was amazed by, you know, I'm always curious about your songwriting process. But then when I was reading the book, I was like, wow, this woman, Jane Asher, who you dated, you know, a, a long, long time ago. Mm. She seemed like a really great love of yours. Um, you know, you write about the first time that you told her you loved her. You guys were being chased by the paparazzi. You sit down in a in a theater and you turn to her and go, I love you. This Jane Asher seemed like a great love. What what actually did go wrong? I mean, why why did you guys never marry? Oh, you know, it, life's little things, Howard. I don't know. Um, well, no, I do know. We we were very good with each other, but when it came to the idea of settling down with each other forever, um, mm -hmm. I didn't think we were quite compatible enough. And uh, you know, there just were little things that were like, nah, it's not. It's it's so nearly right, but not. Uh, and that not was was why we didn't get married. And then shortly after that, I met Linda, where I felt the opposite way. I felt, oh wow, even even if we have a disagreement, I still feel like um, she's the one that I can spend my life with. You know, are you are you like me that um, I I go crazy with old girlfriends? I go on Facebook and I try to look up to see how they've aged. And so I figured, well, you're, you're probably above all that. So I went on, uh, I went on some website. I said, let me see how, what Jane Asher is up to. Got five kids and boy, she looks good. A good looking yeah. woman. Uh, she aged very mm -hmm. well. Do you ever do stuff like that? Where you, you yeah, I want no, to see No, I'm not no? pervert, Howard. <laughs> that's not perverted, Paul. <laughs> it is, it is, that's Howard. Curious. Is it? That's, per that's, a, that's the diary of a pervert. Why? Explain that to me. I don't think you're joking, but why is that a no, pervert? No, I am joking. I am joking. Oh, you are? Okay, it's, okay. It's just, I, I don't happen to do that, I must say. I, I I'm happily married. I got Nancy now, and I'm very happy. Nancy's married. fabulous. I love that, Nancy. You've been very good with women. You know, I was talking about you this morning. I said, you know, Paul is, you know, again, I uh, you don't have to say it, the, the greatest songwriter ever. 
And I said, but he's incredibly good with women. I mean, you know, you never let it really, the stardom, the fame, the accolades. You didn't, I don't feel you got carried away as a human being. I really feel you were pretty well grounded. And, and, and that's reflected in your family and the way you are. I, I really do mean it. And then the other thing that I, you know, I, you brought it up in the book, but in such a casual way. Here you are, the greatest songwriter ever lived. And you can't read music and you can't write music formally. That's right. insane. That is just so crazy. It's crazy. It is. Are, are well, this? you know, especially when you're doing orchestral music, that really is insane. It I mean, when, insane. You're doing, when you're doing, you know, with a group, you can just tell each other or show each other. It goes like this. And with the Beatles, we'd all come up, we'd grown up together. So... You know, if I just sort of said, these are the chords, you know, George F, G minor, George would know exactly what I was talking about and wouldn't puzzle about it. would just go, yeah, okay, F, G minor. Um, and we were like that in the Beatles. You could just tell each other how it went. So we never needed to uh, read music. It was only when we started to put... Uh, instruments like a string quartet on yesterday those kind of little things and then we had george martin right. so we we just go around to george's house and sort of say okay here's what i've got these are the chords and he would say wait a minute and he'd start writing it down you know so we were kind of covered in that area um but late much later on then i start i was asked to write um a thing for a liverpool symphony orchestra so i wrote with a friend of mine called carl davis i wrote this thing called the liverpool oratorio and he had to sit by me and put it all down because i would go down down dum 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 and he'd go wait a minute dun, dun, do, 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 do. and then he'd play it back to me i go yeah that's great so i you know you have to use a different system but does uh, it frustrate you but does it frustrate no. you that you need these other guys to write these things down? You don't care. It, it doesn't no, get No, not your really. Way. No, it's kind of nice, actually, because otherwise you're working on your own all the time. It's kind of nice when somebody else comes in the room. But um, no, it, it's, it's fine. I like, I like the whole process. Because um, you were saying you know, in the book, you were saying in the book, like Eleanor Rigsby, Rig, uh, Eleanor Rigby is um, one, one of my favorite songs. And yet, you say it's amazingly simplistic that you can play it on two chords. Eleanor Rigby. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so I went and got my guitar. Because you say in the book, it's, uh, I forget yeah. what you said. It's like a C and a D or whatever the hell it was. E I, I minor and C. Yeah. Okay. E minor and C. So I started strumming. E minor and C. E minor and C. Uh, uh. And I was like, oh, shit. Paul's right. It's that simple. It's E minor and C over and over again. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and, and do you think if you had known to read music or had that you would never have even simplified those songs so much? That well, you know, that's kind of the theory. Yeah. It's like you can know too much. Now, you know, whenever I say this and start talking like this, I say to the kids out there who are learning music, keep going because that's great too. But in our case, um, none of us could handle music lessons because it was boring. And our minds were sort of racing ahead of the music teacher who would make you go, dum, 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 dum. No, 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 don't like this. You know, right. Yeah. You just could never get inspired. So 
what, as I say, what we used to do was just make it all up. And we're lucky because we're in a group. We all understood what that meant. So we could go and just make the record. And, you know, if we wanted to do a guitar solo, for instance, um, me and George are on the song And Your Bird Can Sing, where there's like a, a two guitars playing in harmony. We just sort of stand there and go, okay, what's the harmony? Yeah, wow, let's do that. Um, and you know, it, it is a bit kind of, um, it should be nerve wracking, but it never was. I mean, I'm, I think about it on the Penny Lane record, there's a, a little high trumpet called a piccolo trumpet. And we got, yes. the, George Martin got the best piccolo trumpet man in town, a guy called Dave Mason. And he was from a classical orchestra. So it, I, we'd made the track, but we left the space for the solo. That, that I thought it'd be good on it. Um, so David comes in and he's getting his trumpet ready and that. And he said, uh, oh, so what do you want me to play? I go, oh, uh, uh, I don't know. And I start sort of doing a melody. And George wanted to go, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. And they'd write it down. Wow. But, you know, we were kind of confident enough to just just make it up in the room. Um, yeah, and then, but what, then what, the guys but what I love actually... But, Paul, what I, you're leaving out the best part in the book that you write in the, in the book about that story. You're, st- you're, you're sitting there putting together Penny Lane. You decide to put piccolo trumpet in it. You bring in the yeah. best piccolo trumpet guy. Yeah. And you say, here's the notes I want you to hit. And the guy goes, I don't think I can hit that note. It's too high. And you turned to him and said, you can do it. Do it. <laughs> and, and he hit it. He hit the note in Penny Lane. You wouldn't accept the fact that he said he couldn't hit that note. No. He just said it's just, he said it's outside the range of the instrument. You know, the instrument goes, and I said, well, it's only one higher, you know, you can do it. <laughs> you can and he do looked, it. You know, I gave him a mischievous look and he gave me a mischievous look back and we went, yeah, come on, let's go for it. And he did it. And I think it plagued him the, his whole career because everyone would say, play that Penny Lane thing. You go, bloody hell, there's that note again. Unbelievable. You but know, that's maybe the you're kind right. of fun, you know, that's the kind yeah. of, that's the kind of, as you say, if, if I'd been classically trained, I probably would have never asked him to do that note because I would have known it was off, off the range of his instrument. So that's what I was just going to say. It kept it exciting, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, if you were, you would have said, yeah, okay, you can't hit that note. We'll come up with a different note. Are there songs yeah. that you listen to now? Either, either from your, your solo career, Wings career, Beatles career, that you say, you know, and I'll tell you what got me thinking about this question. When I talked to Billy Joel the other day, he was telling me he hates the song Captain Jack. He thinks it's a bad song. He goes, it's boring. It's the same two chords over and over again. It's, it's one of my favorite songs that he does. He goes, it's a terrible song. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's too repetitive. When I hear it, I go, what was I thinking? It's a boring song. It's the same. Do you now, being who you are and reflect back, do you hear songs that you say, that was not a good song? I could have done that better. Yeah, I think so. You know, um, you you have songs that uh, lyrically, for instance, rock show, um there's all sorts of very suspect lyrics in that, which you like about, you know, the guy 
picks up his axe. And it's not, I would have never said, hey, man, hand me that axe. It's a guitar, you know, but I was trying to be in the period, you know, because you axe and there's, there's a lot of that in that song. And I, we were talking about doing it once with my current band. Um, and I've got, the guys are all younger than me. So, um, I said, oh, no, I don't think they said we could do rock show. I said, no, no, I hate it. Axe and all this sort of stuff. And they said, oh, it's great. We love all that. Cause they were sort of younger and, you know, it it seemed to them like a good lyric. So that kind of almost changes my mind. I sort of think, yeah, well, maybe you're right. Let's try it. So we did try it, but we don't do it these days. Right. Do you think when you, and, and, and I, maybe it's hard to be honest about this, but when you listen to, especially... I never trusted her. What? Well, it's hard to be honest. I never oh, touched her. Right. It wasn't me, officer. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm saying is, when you would, you know, hear songs, and, and, and being, you know, a musician, of course you listen to other musicians. It's how you get inspiration. It's, you know, it's interesting to see what people are doing. You even say in the book when, when um, you know, Jimi Hendrix had a big mind-blowing experience, uh, 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 certainly uh, an influence on you. You say mm. your favorite guitar is the epiphone guitar now i i'm not a musician i didn't know what the, i know fender i know stratocaster i've heard gibson mm. and you say my favorite guitar became the epiphone guitar mm. because i heard Jimi hendrix playing with feedback and i went to the store and i said i got to get a guitar that has feedback on it i want to use this and it ended up mm. like so all of these all of these influences come in mm. But when you would hear a song on the radio like Yummy, 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 I Got Love in My Tummy or Everybody's Kung Fu Fighting, you know, if you go back and, and listen to some of the, the sh you know, I'm going to call these shitty songs. They were popular, but they mm. were shitty. Were you very critical of other musicians? Would you sit there and say, Jesus Christ, what have we spawned? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but you know what I mean? You hear those kind of songs and you just think, well, I won't be buying that one. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I just pass them by, you know, it's like, nah, somebody's gonna like that. Uh, maybe, you know, eight year olds or something, you know, uh, right. you just get your favorites. So like, you know, I might be, might have been listening to Jimmy or Bob Dylan or people like that, Neil Young and people. Uh, so I just concentrate on them and let the other stuff go by. When you talk about in the book, um, you still to this day, do some kind of hand exercises because your father was a piano player and he uh, toward, you know, toward the end of his life, he couldn't play the piano mm. anymore because he had a, an arthritis, uh, an arthritic condition in his hands. Right. Yeah. You're very worried about that, right? You constantly, as you age, you're like, Oh God, I don't want to end up like my father. I got to be able to play the piano. Well, it's not that I worry about it, but I'm conscious of it. And someone once told me some hand exercises. So I do them. And will that stave you, off arthritis? I mean, will if you keep them yeah. constantly moving like that? Really? I don't know. I mean, here's no. the sound of one hand clapping. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> yeah, you I can can't do that. that. You see? That's hard. Wow. wow. You, you practice. Here's wow. the sound of two hands clapping. <laughs> wow. Oh, Very impressive. Your hands could be cast. <laughs> well, it's actually hard to do, but yeah. if you do it, like, you know, a little, little bit uh, every so it, often, it's, it feels like it keeps your hands. 
lot, so many things I learned in this book. Um, you talk about playing the bass, and uh, you are certainly an accomplished bass player. There's no question about it. And yet, you didn't even want to play the bass. You said, to, "You said," and I'm quoting now, that you said that it's the fat guy who always plays bass. I didn't want to play the <laughs> bass, but none of the other dudes wanted to do it. So I became the bass player. I didn't know that. And and yeah, and, and, yeah that's that's crazy. Well, and then you, you, know, tr- we you tried in, to we... play lead. You tried to play lead, right? But but you, you got nervous yeah. and choked. What what happened there? Yeah, that was uh, exactly that. Uh, we had uh, in a very early uh, formation of the group. Um, we did a little gig, and it was one of the first times I'd ever done it. And, I, and in rehearsal, I could do this nice little guitar solo, you know. So I was choose to do it on in this place called the Co-op Hall in Broadway, only in Liverpool. So right. anyway, they're, we're there, we're there, you know. It comes my turn, yeah, and my fingers just would not move. Oh God, you know. And it, so there's this great big space with me clonking away. And I just thought, <laughs> no, sticky fingers. I thought, forget it. I'm not going to play lead guitar anymore. Uh, anyway, fortunately, George came in the group and he didn't have that problem. He was terrific. But we ended up in Hamburg and, um, I was playing guitar still then, but I'd had such a cheap instrument because my dad was very keen on me not getting into debt. He was a sort of working class man. And he himself had got into debt or he'd blown all his wages on the horses. And so he had so many cautionary tales that he, I, I, in other words, I got a very cheap guitar. It looked good, right. but it was very cheap. And while I was in Hamburg, it kind of fell apart. You know, the sweaty clubs and stuff. It was ruined the glue or something. Anyway, so suddenly I didn't have a guitar. So then I used to go, the, on piano, the, the stage had a little piano, so I would turn away from the audience and play piano for a while. And then Stuart, who was our bass player, had decided that he was going to stay in Hamburg because he fell in love with this girl, Astrid, out there. So now suddenly we didn't have a bass player. So everyone kind of looking at each other, well, who's going to play bass then? You know, we could all probably do it, but who's going to do it? And John and George went, not me. I'm not doing it. So that kind of left, left me. And I was like, oh, all right then. I suppose I'll do it. So I was, you know, it was dumped on me. But, and for a little while I thought, oh, this is boring. But then I heard James Jameson of, uh, uh, you know, Detroit from Detroit Motown. And I thought, whoa, okay, now here we go. I can play melodies and I can really do stuff that, uh, can help the band out oh yeah some of those bass lines man unbelievable like you really just you know you took it to another level it's uh it's incredible fun with it yeah 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 you accepted the fact that you were a bass player and then it became good and then it became something you wanted to do yeah i gotta play a that now paul's book lyrics is out and uh it is sensational again he goes through it's exactly what i'd want in a book from you I wanted to just hear you talk about these songs and tell me uh, the process. And I wanted to play a few of these for you. Now, this caught my attention when you wrote it. You were talking about the song Early Beatles, All My Loving. And you said, and this yeah. is fascinating, what made the song was John's rapid guitar in the beginning. And, that, and I'm going to play Close a little of it. Too. 
You said this is incredibly hard to do. That it takes tremendous yeah. stamina to strum it like does. that. Yeah. I never considered that, but you're right. Listen to that guitar going. Yeah. It's it's fabulous. And you know, you just try it yourself. Just it's just physically, it's quite hard, you know. But John would jump in and do something like that again. You see, you know, because we didn't know. Didn't know right. what you're supposed to do. Someone had written now. <laughs> nobody would have written that as a guitar part, right? You know, and it goes all the way. Well, pretty much, it gets a it gets a break when they go now. Right. And then he goes bah, bah. So he's having a quick, uh, quick break. So, he's so in other words, he's resting his wrist at this point in the song. I think so. Yeah, at that point, yeah. and it works okay. with the arrangement too. This song. Yeah. I love when you write about this. I don't know if you remember this one. It's called I Want to Hold Your Hand. <laughs> yeah, remember? Vaguely. Yeah. Um, now, the thing that intrigued me about this is you said I would. we as a band did not want to come to America unless we had a number one hit. This song stands out because you did it. It was like the fulfillment of desires. We need a number one song, and here it is. This beat went to number one, and you guys came to America, and the rest is history. Yeah. And well, yeah, you know, we, there's so many uh, British guys who are just a little bit older than us, who we kind of, you know, admired. Um, they'd all come over to America, and you think, oh, wow, they're really going to kill over there. Right. Um, and Americans weren't that interested, and you work it out. It's because Americans had Elvis. Or they right. had Little Richard, or they they had all the big rock and roll stars. So, a solo singer uh, trying to be a little bit of an Elvis copy wouldn't work because you had Elvis and he was just miles better, you know. So we we, we kind of saw this happening, and I just sort of put it put two and two together and I said to our manager that we can't go to America until we've got a number one and we were doing very well in England and like Europe and stuff yeah. and I said we just gotta wait we just gotta wait just hold it and then suddenly this happens and wow Paul holding it and waiting is really hard because the temptation back then is like hey we gotta get to America if we're ever really gonna be big America's the biggest market so really, holding back and waiting was kind of a brilliant strategy. You could have come, and you could have said, hey, maybe something will happen, maybe it won't. But it was so smart, because mm. then when you stepped off the plane, everybody wanted to see you, and everybody yeah. wanted to know you. Oh, come on, man. There's nothing they could say. And that was like the, that was the idea, you know. It was like when we we get off the plane, and, you know, everyone's like, yeah, because it's the number one. This is the number one act arriving. So that works. And then we had a little uh, press conference where there's all these hard-boiled New York guys, hey, Beatles, hey, Beatles, what do you know, you know? And we're going, well, yes, we're number one in your country. And what can <laughs> they say to that? You know, I remember that press conference like it was yesterday. I remember watching and I was like, boy, people are really hostile. Like the, these reporters like hostile to the Beatles because you guys were number one. It's weird. Why were they so fucking hostile? I guess because well, you, you know, it's, come on, it's just... Uh, 
New York journalists at that point felt they had to be, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. showing you, I'm a New Yorker. I'm not phased. You may be famous. You may, the girls may all like you, but I don't. Beetle. Hey, yeah. Beetle. Hey, Beetle. And we did, I remember we did a, uh, a photo session in Central Park and uh, they're all going, hey, Beetle, 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 look at, look at me, look at me. And then we'd finished it and it was all great. And we said, okay, thanks. You know, and he'd go, one more, one more for the West Coast. Come on, Beetle, one more for the West Coast. We go, okay. <laughs> yeah. But, you what know, it's just, they were trying to show that New York thing, you know, and we kind of liked it because we're from Liverpool, you know, we know that, that yeah. one, you know. That was one thing we used to say to them. We say, you know, you, you know, we very similar in some ways, you know, because like if you guys um, want to take a bath, you say I'm going to take a bath. So do we. We don't say take a bath. So no, no, right. we're much more. You've got much more in common with you guys. So yeah, but it it, it was exciting as you can imagine. As great as your career has been, I get the feeling that. When that song hit number one, you guys were in Paris and yeah. you got a telegram. Back in those days, we got telegrams. And the telegram mm -hmm. said, you guys are number one in America. Your song, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I want to hold your hand is number one. Is there any greater high? Now, even with everything you've accomplished, was that the moment where you felt like I could be a real musician? I can actually, this can actually be a living. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a huge moment to say. As we talking, you know, we'd waited, and it was like maybe a dangerous strategy. You know, maybe we're going to wait and just, you know, you know, fall off the vine kind of thing. But here it was, you know, this telegram capital. Um, congratulations, boys! Number one in the U.S. of A. And it's like ah, and you know, we just. Uh, we just jump in around the room in Paris. It was at the George Sank Hotel in Paris. And we are just jumping around the room and we're getting the drinks out and we're just riding around the room on, on my, our roadie's back. Mal. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> just, what a, whoa, how old were you? That was a what were you? Well, you guys were probably, I don't know, I don't know 19, 20, 20, I don't know. kind of thing. Yeah, God, early 20. Unbelievable. You yeah. know what I love? It was, I it was a great moment. I love this book, the lyrics, because you, you it's the little moments in the book that I love. Like you say, you know, and you had time to reflect when you wrote it. You go, one of the best songs I ever wrote. Now, I'm going to leave people to imagine what that song might be. What is Paul McCartney says? One of the best songs I ever wrote. And then I was shocked when it was this one. One, two, three, five. What a song, Paul. Come on. Come on, man. What a Come fucking on. song. And and I love that whole thing. You were writing it and you go, she was just 17, never been a beauty queen. That was your first thought. And yeah. John said to you, no fucking way, right? We're not going to say never been a beauty queen. <laughs> yeah, we you both know, looked at each other and I knew that he was going to say that. And I was like, oops, you know, this, this is not good. That would have ruined the song, uh, right, Paul? It would have, because it, you can't say that about a woman. Yeah, she never been a beauty. I mean, I love that you wrote that, but I guess the public wouldn't have accepted that line. 
No, you know, it, it wasn't good. It just, it was a rhyme, but it wasn't good, you know. It's funny, years later, I was getting um, a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and Neil Young was there. Wow. Good old Neil, a buddy, you know. And yeah. um, I told him that story. I said, you know, who's never been a beauty queen. And he goes, oh, yeah, great. And then he was playing that night. It was a music cares thing, you know, a big uh, benefit in L.A. And Neil was playing on it. And he did the song, and he used that line, of course. <laughs> right, of course he, he did. He's the only one to ever use that line, I think. But, uh, no, it was great. And then um, I think this is in the book where we, we were playing the White House for President Obama, which was another one of those incredible experiences. Um and Jerry Seinfeld was on there, and he was doing a little chat about stuff, you know. So I'm sitting there next to the president of America and his wife and his kids and, you know, just uh, my wife. And the whole thing was, like, amazing. And uh, Jerry says, oh, Paul, you know, your lyrics here, he says, uh, she was just 17. You know what I mean? He said, Paul... I'm not sure we do know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. He's unbelievable, Jerry, right? I mean, just a fucking funny man. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah really good. And Neil Young's a close friend of yours? I mean, like, will you pick up the phone and call him and talk music sometimes or just bullshit around? I mean, I, he's a fascinating yeah, guy. Yeah, I saw him. For, I was in New York the other night and uh, went out to dinner with him. It was great, actually. We had a little dinner with uh, him, a few mates. Um, okay. All guys? Just like a, a bunch of It musicians? was all guys, actually. Yeah, it was all guys. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, we had a good laugh, you know. There was three of them. There were four, actually. But three who I knew, uh, comedians. Only trouble is, it was beautiful. And it was great. It was great to be there. But I was kind of an observer because... They started going, oh, you remember the, the, the love-in? Oh, my God, that was a great room. And they're going on about all these rooms and the so-and-so-and-so. Remember, remember Gallagher? Gallagher well, was great <laughs> because they lost me. I don't know what the hell this room or Gallagher is. So I kept having to say, well, who's that? You know, anyway. But they were on a roll. And I say, well, it, was, it was great just to observe it. You know, it was great fun. Yeah, that's probably fun for you. Where like maybe they're not talking music. Here's yeah. a bunch of comics talking about rooms that they played and uh, and all yeah, this and, exactly and yeah. other comics. Yeah, it, you probably love it that. It was cool. Yeah. Well, it's weird because when you when I read your book, I realize, hey, you know, so many of Paul's great songs are through observation, and now mm -hmm. you're the observed one. You go out to dinner with a bunch of guys. It's like, hey, let's sit there and hear what Paul's got to say. So it's kind of nice where some guys can just say, hey. Uh, never mind this guy. Let's talk about rooms we played. You know, it, it's a rare, it's, yeah, it's really, it it's good. great. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a song you might remember. I'm going to play this for you. It's called And I Love Her. Nice song. I give her all my love. Now, what I was curious about, that little intro, you write, your memory of that was, George Martin said, that song needs an intro, and George came up with that on the spot. I'm talking about this little part here. Do -do -do -do. Da -da -da. In other words, that wasn't in your head when you wrote the song. No. And that's the great thing about the Beatles, that you could turn to George. Come on up with this, a little intro. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's 
He's exactly what we're talking about. If, if you're classically trained, you would have written the melody and things out, and uh, you would have, you wouldn't have thought we need an intro, and you wouldn't have known what to do. Oh my right. God, we need an intro! Oh my God, the producer, the grown-up has said we need an intro. Oh hell, what are we gonna do? But it was like okay, and George Harrison, George just comes up. He goes do 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 do, and it's like yeah, that's nice. And suddenly mm. there it is. And I say, you know, what would that song be without that little thing he just came up with on the spot? Mm. You're right. Uh, yeah, He might have been thinking nice. it when, when I was playing it through for the guys. He might have been thinking, yeah, you know, could that's what I'll do or something. I don't know. But when George Martin said, it'd be good to have an intro, there was George, stepped up. He was ready. Yeah. And it's you know, so beautiful. We, we really knew each other so well. That's one of the big secrets of the Beatles. I mean, we, we lived in each other's pockets for years, you know, and it just gives you this kind of intimacy where you just know what the other guy's going to think a lot of the time. You yeah, know? you can rely on your mate, you know. It's, uh, it's yeah. really in insane. I'm fascinated too about the song "Can't Buy Me Love." This was another. This was another song that, of course, was a number one song. Great song. But the great story you tell is that this song was number one. But you gave one of your songs that you wrote when you were 16 years old. I can't even imagine you wrote it. 16 years old. You wrote the hit song uh, "A World Without Love." You gave it to Peter and Gordon, and. You, you gave them this song that you wrote when you were 16 years old, mm -hmm. and that song knocked you guys off the number one chart. <laughs> that's that's mm. just wild. And, and, and I wonder, yeah. first of all, I never understand how you wrote that song, A World Without Love. This is the song that you wrote when you were 16. Please lock me away and don't Gorgeous song. But you said, oh, all the Beatles agreed this is not a Beatles song. This is so a Beatles song. I don't understand that thought. It's not a Beatles yeah, I think song. Looking back on it, you could say that, yeah. I think, you know, it's just like an old suit or something, a bit of an item of clothing. You just think, oh, I don't really like that. Why is it in my wardrobe? You know, uh, and that was one of them. It was like, it's okay, but if I've ever want to give a song to anyone that one that one would work you know and what did you I, think uh, when also, it went to number one by the one? way he was my uh he was my girlfriend's brother right what a cool <laughs> move keep him by with the, the way. girlfriend's brother yeah that what a cool move to say to your yeah. girlfriend's brother hey here's a song i wrote when i was 16 you guys yeah. go record this were you pissed when it went to number one in a way like and it knocked your own song off the charts like I, it, no. it's no, I, I was the writer on it, so I didn't mind. Did John come to you and say, why the hell didn't we use that on a Beatles album? Uh, did, yeah, did what are you doing, giving away? No, I think, you know, we all kind of understood that we, we were confident enough that, you know, the well wasn't running dry. We, we knew we were coming up with better songs. And um, so, no, no, no one was worried. It was kind of good. I mean, the thing was... What was interesting for me was that I, I thought it through and I thought, uh, if I do this, um, 
people are going to say, oh, it's just because it's Paul McCartney wrote it, it's just because it's a Beatles song, really, you know. Right. And no wonder it went to number one, you know. So I said, well, I'll, I'll change my name for it. So the, the writing credits on that, are, it's by Bernard Webb. Oh, so Ber- wow. It was Bernard that got to number one. <laughs> That's so funny that to me. me. Oh, my God. I, you know, um, uh, there's so many great songs that you talk about. Uh, of course, yesterday. I mean, maybe maybe this is one of the greatest songs ever written. I don't know. Yesterday, I mean, I think. I can't think of many better all ones. All my this. troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here When you write about this song. It was weird. The Beatles had never put out a song before. I remember seeing you on TV performing this for, for the first time, and you were sitting there alone. None of the Beatles were around you, and you performed it. And I had never seen the Beatles do that before. And you point out in the book, the Beatles had never once put out a song where it was a solo song, where it was one performance from you. Um, that's kind of generous that John was able to like take himself out of it. He said, I don't think I can add to this song. You know, yeah. um, yeah. a lot of bands wouldn't be able to do. We were very honest with each other, you know, and and that was it. It was like, well, what could he do? He couldn't do that guitar part again. No, it was. I think the thing was for me, it was a little bit embarrassing because I didn't want to be the guy who's was out on the stage on his own, you know, because there's a lot of comfort in being in a group of mates and then suddenly once i'd done this song because you know it, it came to me in a dream and then i i wrote the lyrics when i was not with the band uh, you know i was on a holiday and so when i brought it in it was just me solo guitar uh, and that was it and the guys just said well we can't put a drum on that you know it doesn't need it uh, and the one guitar is doing enough um, but it was a little bit embarrassing, so embarrassing that we elected not to do it as a single in Britain. Hmm. Said, no, we can't put that out. We're like a rock group, you know. But they insisted in America, so I think it was a single in America. But Would we you didn't know about- really want to do it. You know, we liked it and stuff, but uh, it wasn't a big feature of our stage act. It's know? amazing to me, though, Paul, that like you didn't say to yourself, oh, shit, I don't need these guys anymore. You know, some guys... <laughs> Take their lucky break and break it in two. You didn't. Ooh. You said no. Yeah, I'm well, lucky. Yeah. No, I, would, you I was, wouldn't ever want to do that, you know. It's, uh, I know. It's not you know. cool. Well, in, in our case, it wasn't cool. I mean, you know, if I'd have had just three ropey musicians with me, then maybe that thought starts to occur. Hey, I'm better than these guys. But not when you've got John Lennon, George <laughs> Harrison, Ringo Starr. You right. don't mess with that. You knew you had a good thing. Yeah, that's Mm. what I admire about your career. You knew you had a good thing. You didn't piss it Mm. away. You didn't. And look at the music that came out. This one you say is simple. This is a simple song. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not a musician, but you say it's only two chords again. That's it. Mostly, yes. So far it is. What are we listening to? A C and a something? My car. No, but I mean, what are the two chords? Maybe oh, you can. Um, it's, I think it's D and G. D and oh, G, no, that's there's it. another chord. No, there's a, a third chord just came in. B minor. Ah. Uh, I can't yeah. play B minor. Oh, the verse I mean, is just the two. 
That's then I can play it. Two G. Oh, that's it. D. I could jam with you on this. Come on, man. Yeah, I could D and G it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, I'm going to play a and song here. Yeah, just, I think there's four chords in it. Listen to this. What a song. This again is this girlfriend, Jane Asher. You break, you had a big fight, and you just have that thought. We can work this out. And then you write a song. Brilliant. It, it is looking back on it, you know, from the sort of this era we're in. It's a bit, uh, you know, it's a bit. Come on, girl, you know I'm right. <laughs> it's not like, you know, in a feminist world, you may be just as right as I am. This song's like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, come on, you'll find out that I was right. Don't worry about it. Just let me work it out. Now, now when, when George wrote Taxman, which is a yeah. great song, and George got his moment, and, you know, he, he, you oh, know yeah. because you and John are so prolific, you know, he'd, mm. he'd get one of his songs in. Why do you think after he wrote it, he said to you, you know, you, you suggested the lead. I'm talking about this part, the, 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 the lead on the, the song. The yeah. solo. You suggested it to him. He says, you know what, Paul? That's fabulous. You play it. Again, th th this solo. This is you. Listen to you. Show off. <laughs> we got it down. We got it down. That's a hell of a lead. So George plays Taxman for you, and you say, wait, I got the lead for this thing. You played for him, and he doesn't get insulted. He doesn't say, oh, here's Paul taking my lead from me on my song. He gladly accepts that you play it. Yeah, it is It is very generous of him, yeah. I yeah. think, you know, in the studio, the best idea won. So, right. um, you know, uh, it would be like, well, what are we going to do here? What are we doing? Because, we, you know, you'd always, often anyway, leave a space for the solo, but that at that time of our careers, you kind of thought, oh, we, we should have something great here, and let's leave the space because who knows, it could be, you know, organ from space, uh, from Mars, I don't know, we could put something crazy in there, and uh, so I said, well, I've got a kind of rough idea, you know, George said, go on, try it, so I go down there and do this little solo. And uh, yeah, he was very happy with it. You know, it's uh, it's a great happy song. Happy with it, a, a lovely song. Oh, it's a beautiful song. He was generous, you know, he's a generous guy, and we we could all sort of do that, not get too upset if somebody. I mean, Ringo once a couple of times let me drum, you know, because I just sort of say, oh, it could be like this, you know. What about if we did it like this? He said, well, you do it then. Go on. You, you um, know, whenever you tell that story, I think, well, it, it sounds like Ringo was upset because, <laughs> I don't you know, so. like, oh, look at Paul taking my drum part or something. Well, but I guess you I'm, know, uh, listen, yeah. Howard, looking back on it, it could have been that, you know, but right. I would just blast through the minute he said, yeah, go on. I would go, okay, and jump on the drums. Um, it could have been a bit of that, you know, but it didn't seem like that. And it never... I mean, you know, if it had really been like that, that would have, you know, led to a bit of a row and a bit of bad feeling between us. But it yeah. wasn't. It was just like, yeah, well, okay, there's the drums done. 
good. You know, we're done. That's that's and, you know uh, that's very gracious of Ringo and really recognizing. Mm. I I'm shocked when you write about you know um, uh, another one of George's songs, "While Guitar While My Guitar Gently Weeps," that mm. uh, he brought in Clapton to do the solo. Were you kind of shocked by you know I'm talking about the, of course. Well, weren't you like the Beatles? Certainly were capable of coming up with the lead on this. Were you like, why are we bringing an Eric Clapton for this part? I mean, it's a beautiful solo. Don't get me wrong. I I, I just. Mm. I just somehow think no, you guys could have done it. No, I think, you know, it. the spirit of the times, people always talk about rivalry between the groups, particularly Stones and Beatles. Right. It wasn't like that. We were all so excited. We're young kids. You're talking about it. You know, what are we? We're early 20s. We've come down for London. We're in, come down to London. We're all buying smart clothes and all that. Yeah. And we realize there's all these cool guys who aren't from Liverpool, but they're old mates. And Eric was one of them, you know, and we just thought, wow, he's, he's really great. And George knew him. Um, it didn't end up well that he knew him. He no, George's I mean, wife. he took George's wife, right? Yeah, that's, that's a bit naughty. What, what did you think of, what did you make of that, Paul, at the time? That, like, George had a wife and Eric Clapton runs off with his wife. I mean, to me, that's scandalous. It's scandalous. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it was pretty scandalous, I must say. But what are you going to do? I didn't know the circumstances, you know. Um, I felt sorry for George, to tell you the truth. Of course. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it was just the way it happened, and it wasn't anything to do with me, so I just let him get on with it, you know. There's been when, quite a lot of little moments like that, you know, because it's a rock and roll group, you know, and people get a little crazy occasionally, and things like that can happen, you know. But when um, Eric Clapton runs off with your wife, do you like? I, I assume maybe you were invited to the wedding. Do you do you, do you send a gift or do you say, "Hey, screw that"? Uh, <laughs> the, 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 George is one of my guys, and I'm I'm, I'm on his team. No, I would think the I, Beatles should have gone over and beaten up uh, Eric Clapton, maybe as a group. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, a good idea. Well, I did not go to the wedding. I would not have gone to it. You're right. Um, but you know, we forgive him. Work out. Yeah, it didn't I work out. So. So, that's, you know. that's true. Yeah, you know, maybe you did him a favor. Why do you say, this is amazing to me, the amazing Paul McCartney, who sings so beautifully, you say on Eleanor Rigby, you went to George Martin and said, I don't think I can sing this song. It's too tough a vocal. I can't sing this vocal. I would think there is no way a song you wrote that you would say, I can't sing the vocal. What about this vocal is so difficult? Um, you know, when you when you write it, uh, you you hear it in your head a certain way. And when I came to record it, you know, there's a lot of pressure because uh, this again was something that where the Beatles weren't on it. Because right. after we'd done yesterday with the string quartet, now this was just strings doing the backing. So I'm I've got to listen to these strings and then put sort of insert myself into the middle of this beautiful little arrangement George Martin's done uh, and it wasn't that easy um, hmm. and I didn't feel like I was singing it that well but George was very reassuring he said no it's good you know it's okay um, but yeah just one of those songs that just didn't think I was nailing it uh, you know that happens a lot uh, anyone who's recorded will know you know in the studio you can sometimes get a, a wee crisis of confidence. 
Yeah. And you can think, oh, God, you know, I'll never do this. I'll never get it. I mean, one time, just on that kind of theme, was uh, I used to do Kansas City, Little Richards, Kansas City. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, you know, this is a certain kind of thing. I remember John, before the studio, months before, had said to me, how do you do that? Because, you know, he didn't do that little screamy thing. He did. He screamed, twist and shout, but it wasn't right. the same as this little, little, little Richard thing. And I said, I don't know. I said, it just kind of comes out the top of my head. And he went, oh, wow, really? And we didn't say any more about it until he came to the this, this session. And now here we were, and we'd, we'd, uh, we'd done the backing track, and now I was in this great big studio on the mic, trying to summon up the spirit of Little Richard and freedom and all this sort of stuff. And I wasn't getting it. I was kind of, it's like a, a parody. I wasn't doing it with my normal sort of strength, you know, and gusto. So John comes down from the control room where he's been listening to it. He comes down, he just whispers in my ear. He says, it comes out the top of your head, remember? <laughs> so sweet. I go, oh, yeah, yeah. So then, wow! And you know, the next take is the one you hear. It was, uh, yeah. You know, you know, you know it's you know, that does happen in the studio where you just think, "I'll never get this. This is, I've, you know, I've bitten off too much. I'm never going to get this song." And you need mates or a great producer or, you know, there's always something that can just help. And suddenly you go, "Okay, I've got this." You know. It's it's great to hear that because I think we all assume you can do anything musically, and it's good to hear that you struggle. You know what I mean? I really, I, uh -huh. I, it actually is inspiring. I'm sure to a lot of musicians. I, I thought it was really a sweet moment in the book, and again, the book is called The Lyrics. It, um, it, you know, you say my last conversation with John, we sat and talked about baking bread, and I went, oh gosh, that's so beautiful because that's almost yeah. like a full circle kind of thing. They spoke about. Baking, like baking bread feeds you. It's, it, it warms the house when you bake bread. Um, mm. You know, that, that actually just, mm. I don't know, it made me It sad. was something, yeah, it was very special to me that, that we reached that point, actually, because, you know, you'd had the whole horrible thing of the group bre breaking up and yeah. the, uh, the whole thing there, which is, you know, very painful. Um, but we gradually sort of started to piece it together over the years, you know, and we, I think we just realized, come on guys, you know, we, we, we love each other. What are we doing? We're messing around. And, mm. uh, yeah, I, I ring John and we had a bread strike in England or every, the bread makers went on strike, you know, so you just couldn't get bread. So I went round to the local bakers in the high street and I said, you know, can I buy some, yeast you know to make bread he said no way you know the bread the bread strike he said you know it's like it's like gold you can't get this stuff anywhere you know i could go on and i gave him a little look you know a little mischievous look go on then just a little <laughs> and i persuaded him anyway so here you are so he gave me it and i got went home and and was baking bread and got quite good at it you know so when i heard john was doing it it was great we could just talk about something so ordinary uh that there's no threat or anything it was just two guys talking about well i don't know what would you do you leave it overnight or what do you do mm. you know and so on so that yeah i leave it overnight in a hot cupboard you know and you'd have you'd just be chatting 
and it was, it was really nice. And I was so glad that that we got back to that relationship that we'd always had, you know, when we were kids. Like I say, you know, we'd we'd lived in each other's pockets for so long that it was it was great to get back to that. That's why I love that you Yeah. I love I love Paul that you wrote about the song Dear Friend in your book. Because you're that song you say it was just, it was a, it was a letter been sent to John saying, "What the fuck? You, what happened with us? Why is all this bickering and fighting?" And I even think, you know, I've said this to you before, and I don't know what you think, but and I almost hesitate to say it. I don't want to be taken the wrong way, but I think if John was around, he also bullied you in a sense. You put out an album, he had a way in on it. You know, the Beatles were no longer together. He had to be. He had to give you a dig. You know. He had to write a song about it or give an interview and say, oh, Paul didn't do this. If you put out a book to this day, like you're putting out this new book, mm. it would be, oh, that's Paul's take on things. Uh, you know, I'm tired. Mm. Yeah, it, sure. it's, like, it's like you don't have that constant worry in your life anymore that you're going to be crucified for just mm. giving your experience and your point of view about the Beatles or, or in music. You know, yeah, well, you, yeah, that, that's true, but, you know, I'd swap it all out for him to be alive. I, know. I understand yeah. that, I, you know, and I understand that, uh, you know, but... It's, it, uh, it's... Now, the thing is, Howard, you know, it's John. You well, know, if it, when I first met him, that's John. He's just like that. And, you know, when you've had as long a relationship with him as I had, you get to take these things with a, a pinch of salt. It can Good be, for you. you know... It can be as mean as anything, but you just know the next minute he'll, he won't think like that. You know, he's just getting something out. And you, you got used to it, you know. And you, sometimes you'd get annoyed back, but um, not often, because you just want, well, that's John, isn't he? What a dick. You know, and you, <laughs> that, would, that would be it. You just would think, you know. Paul, that might be the thing that I love about you most. I am so thin-skinned. There's sometimes I see people who attack me who I know I've been good to. And I go, why would they do that to me? I've been so good to them. And that's how I feel about you and John. I could picture you mm. sitting somewhere. You know, you've just put out Ram or something. And, you know, mm. and John's got a way in. And, and you'd say to yourself, my God, I, all I did was mm. collaborate with this man. All I did mm. was we, we made beautiful music together. What's the fucking problem? You know, and that's what that song, Dear Friend, is. What's the fucking mm. problem? I don't know what to yeah. do about it. Well, you, you know, you're right. I mean, obviously, when those things happen, particularly like when you put out an album and you're thinking, okay, I hope this goes down well, you know, because you're not, you're not impervious to that. You do think those things. So I'm thinking, and then you, let's say you hear John sort of slagging it off. Um yeah, you know, in the uh, aftermath, after the breakup of the Beatles, there was some very sad moments for me in there, mm. you know, where, sure. you know, you you would get really down. And, and you, you know, I'm sure I probably cried a few times going, oh, what the fuck? As you say, you know, what the hell? Why do we, why did we have to get like this, you know? Um, I think then you'd kind of just, you'd, You'd row through it, you know, you'd steamroll your way through it, and you get to the other side and you go, oh, it's John again, of course. <laughs> I mean, in the book, I, I, I say this thing that always stuck with me, 
where, you know, John wore these glasses, these spectacles, and we'd be having a, a chat or something, and he'd say something I didn't agree with or something, and he'd go, ah, bleh, 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 and he'd come out with a load of uh, crap, you know. And I'd go, what, what, what's, what, you know, and I'd be visibly upset kind of thing, you know, because he was such an onslaught. But then he's, he could see that, and what he'd do, he just would lower his glasses, he'd look at me and go, it's only me. And then he put the glasses back on again. It was like, that's John. It's only yeah, well, You know, it's only John. John and, had a rough you know, life, so and, and I think that's where it did. comes he from. He did. He had I, a very rough yeah. life. So you can't, you know, that's, that was something that I really ended up thinking, you know. You can't expect someone to come off that life without some putting up some kind of a shield. Yeah, you that's, know, uh, that's very understanding have, of you. He's, he's, mm. It's understanding of you, and it's also like, you know, but you can only take so many shots. You know, you also have to protect yourself emotionally. Mm -hmm. You know, you do. It, mm -hmm. it, you, can, you can only put up with it for so long. I, you know, Paul, yeah. why, why do you say in the book that this is a song you have never done live, but you get more requests for it? We're talking about Rocky Raccoon. You say, good song, love this song, but I've never performed Some it live, and everyone wants me to. Love this. Everybody wants you to do it. Why not do it? Uh, what's the hang-up? I don't know. It's an awful lot of words to learn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that makes sense to me. I, I get it. I, 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 I could totally just go get to it. the movies instead. <laughs> right. There's so many, um, it's, you know, there's so many. It's laziness, laziness. I would like to do it, and I have thought of doing it, but it's sheer laziness, you know. One of these days, I'll get around to it. You got to. Listen, people want it. There's so many great stories. You know, Paul's uh, new book is called The Lyrics. Check it out. It's, um, I love when you talk about this, you know, you talk about, um, um, you know, even using this technique of stuttering, like uh, uh, on birthday, you know. Take a cha-cha-cha chance. And you said, oh, that was just our response to the Who's My Generation. Or our changes with David Bowie. Ch-ch-ch-changes. It's a technique, right? It, it, what does it do? It sucks yeah. us in as listeners? Yes, yeah, just a good little trick. I mean, yeah. you know, you can't be around as long as I have, with, uh, have without learning just a couple of tricks. Um, <laughs> You just you just get these little things. You think, yeah, that's good. Throw that one in. I don't want to keep you too long. I hear Robin be... in the background. Hi, yes, Robin, Robin is here. Hi Robin there, is I'm here. here. How and you I could doing? listen to this all day. Uh, me You're too. You're going to have I to. Mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not letting you go. No, no. I know you have a, a certain <laughs> amount of time and everything. I was, uh, but but just give me a couple more minutes. First of all, on. Um, you were talking about influences in your book, and you know, you were like, uh, "This was great to me." You said you were in the room with Roy Orbison when he was working on writing. You saw him write this song, yeah. "Oh Pretty Woman." What a it moment! Was, uh, it was on a bus, actually. It was on, yeah. on a bus. We were on tour together in England, and uh, you stop every so often so everyone can have a pee, a cup of tea, and you know, a sandwich or something. Yeah. And me and John had, had done that and now we sort of we're getting back on the bus and so it's an empty bus but right on the at the back of it on the back seat there's Roy and he's got his guitar and he's writing this so it's wow. like well 
So we just sort of stood there and just watched him do it. And, yeah, it was a special moment, you know, because you never know whether it's going to be a good song or, or not, but he was, he was inspired. But Did you know right away it was a good song? Man. Did you go, what, like, yeah. you were like, whoa, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you know. I mean, an awful lot of what he did was good. I mean, he was, he was a great man. I have students up in my old school who uh, I talk to about songwriting. I, I give a little kind of class sort of thing. And sometimes what happens is they're, they're very nice to be, um, you know, sometimes they're, they're foreign students. Um, they're really good, but sometimes it may be uh, like a, a little folk singer or something, and she's she's singing it, and <clears throat> at the end of the song, it'll kind of go, It just like fades away, like someone sort of put her to sleep. And I go, whoa, let me tell you about Roy Orbison. I said, you know, he's on stage, and he goes, the last note is the big note, running scared. And, you know, (laughs) everyone knows to clap. All the audience goes, that's the end. And they clap. So I say to these kids, you know, just sometimes maybe just think of something that lets the audience know you've finished. Right. Because otherwise you just throw it away, you know. Sometimes (laughs) they just fade and it's like, is is she finished? (laughs) I didn't know you had a class. Roy Roy was the master of that, you know, so I learned a lot of tricks off him. Yeah, speaking of tricks, you said on Jet, one of the tricks you've learned is sometimes you just scream. And um, and it just catches up. It's just like the. It, it's like the first big thing is like, Jack, you know. Yeah. It's a trick. It's like it's the, wake up, yeah. everyone. Let's go. <laughs> I didn't know you taught a class. I mean, where the hell is that going on? Let's go. Yeah. I want to sit well, uh, the the school that me and George went to was called in Liverpool was a kind of really good school. We didn't like it. But it turned out it was a very good school. And it was called the Liverpool Institute. Uh, no, no. The, yeah, the Liverpool Institute High School for Boys, that's what it mm. was called. And there was a thousand boys. And over the, over the street, there was this great big wall. And enclosed in there were a thousand girls. <laughs> and we never saw them. So this made us such sex maniacs. We're lusting. What goes on over that wall? Anyway, so that school um, was getting was going to get pulled down and stuff. And I've you know remembered it so fondly that I've ended up uh, doing a sort of campaign, and we rescued the school because it was an old eighteen twenty five building, you know. So right. we rescued it, and, and uh, it's now a performing arts school called Liverpool oh. Institute of the Performing Arts, Liverpool. Right. And so, so I go up there for graduations and, and things like that, and then see the songwriting students. There's like songwriting students, video students, actors, dancers. It's quite a, a lot of disciplines they do. So I, I see the songwriters and just uh, talk to them about what they're doing and, you know, whether I can give them any advice. And uh, so it's, it's so nice, great. quite rewarding. It's so nice that, yeah, so nice that you do that. By the way, you look great. I'm looking oh. you over, and I'm Thank like, you. man, you look fucking great. Well, I don't know what you're doing. Fucking great yourself, Howard. No, I don't. <laughs> you don't have to say that. You don't have to say that. That's all right. I know what you're. I don't have Stop to. It. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Listen, there's so much to talk about, but I, I, I'm getting the high sign. I, I mean, uh, you got to give me yeah. 50 hours in a row. You know what I mean? Where are you going now? <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? Are you going to eat something? What? Do you, what's the plan? Where? Are uh, you you I, know what? I just got to see a couple of. I'm in the office, so I got a couple of other people to see and stuff. Oh. Well, actually, you're right. Actually, I'm going to have a bagel. No, a bagel. You, That's what your thing is. Got, bagel. You put your finger right on it. I am going to have a toasted bagel with with what on it. <laughs> What are you going to put on it? You put on it this stuff called Marmite, which is oh. like very British. It's like, yes. a, yeah, you love it or hate it. I love it. You put that on it, and then you put some hummus on the top of that. Hmm. Just my well, little my little tipple. Here's the way I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to say, Paul, you've done it again. You gave me a book that I was really thinking, this is a great idea. And I bet you a lot of other musicians are going to do it, but they don't have your catalog. What Paul did was he sat down and he said, I don't remember half the stuff that's happened in my life. But if you, if you, if I talk about these songs, that's how my memory mm. works. I can remember things around these songs. And so now we have the book and I'm telling you, you'll love it because that's I didn't a get treasure. to actually yeah. it's a treasure to be able to see what you were thinking, what was happening in your life while these songs were created. Yes, and what Paul essentially just did now, the, I just got to a small bit of it, but he basically goes through these songs and tells you what was happening. And if any any fan of Paul's is going to love this. The, the book is called The Lyrics. It's available wherever books are sold. You can hear Paul on Sirius XM's Beatles channel on Channel 18 and also everywhere else in the world. And thanks for doing this. You, you, you're <laughs> yeah, real, man. No, it's really nice, Howard. You know, I look forward to our interviews, I must say. I, I always have a too. bit of a laugh. Yeah. When well, will you be back? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's book you right hours. now, because I got another fifty thousand hours to do. You know, I got to tell you, I got so jealous when I saw that thing you did with Rick Rubin. I go, how can Paul cheat on me? I want him with me. I want to sit in this studio with him. I got jealous. I did. Yeah, you know, uh, well, I did. Can handle it. He's a good guy, old Rick. You know, guy. it worked out. I must say. I know. But, All um, right, listen. Go well, have your I bagel. wasn't too time in you. <laughs> I know. I understand. I, I I can't keep you to myself. I I get that, but I do get jealous. Um. Anyway, I know yeah. what you have to do today. Actually, Paul likes to eat his bagel and watch the movie Help over and over again on a continual <laughs> loop. That's his. That, that's, that's the rest all of his I day. do ever. You have you ever gone back and watched that? Yeah. 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 What happens is you you tend to sometimes you put it on for the kids. Oh, you know, okay. I, I got grandchildren, and big big favorite is Yellow Submarine. Right, got it. They love right, that, look. and it's great because you watch it with them. You see it completely anew, see it through their eyes. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I do that occasionally. Nice. All right, listen, Paul. Okay, Howard. Just a big thank you. Okay, and lots of love. All right, man. Thank peace you. Uh, Have a yeah, wonderful peace day. Peace and love to you. Thanks, Robin. All right. Thanks See you, Howard. That. A bagel calls. <laughs> I understand. I want That's that a bagel. Good title: A bagel calls. <laughs> yeah, it's a new song. Wow! Well, wow! That was. I got emotional. I don't know why. Listening yeah. to those stories. The stories, the songs, and uh, last night I'm going through his whole book, and I'm like, okay, I only have so much time with this guy. How many songs can I fit in and get stories and, um. I got to uh, about uh, a th mm, half, maybe a little over half of what I wanted to get to. 
Mm. Because the problem I had when I read the book, I was like, well, I just want to ask Paul about all these things and what it was like. And so we got a, we got a taste, but the book is really that good. It's just a lot of fun. And then there's a whole bunch of pictures and song lyric sheets and it's really a nice compilation, but yeah. Yeah. When does it come oh. out? Did I think it's say? out now. Am I right, guys? It comes out today, isn't it? It's out now. Or it's out now, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I read it on Kindle. I know you've been uh, reading on Kindle. I did, but but for this book, I ended up it's hard to see any artwork or lyric right. sheets and stuff, so I really should just buy the book so I can look at all that cool stuff. Yeah, um, and take the books out of your library that you don't care about and put this yeah. one in. Yeah, so I'll have one book. I'll have his book, maybe a couple of mine. <laughs> one of mine, anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway, what a what an, what an opportunity. Yeah. yeah, what a fucking opportunity to interview that guy. May he live forever. He looks good, too. Mm-hmm. No, no spring chicken. Somehow I look over. The Beatles that are left don't age. You That's know? right. Like, they don't age like people. I look over. They age like beetles. Like the, the, the bug, the beetle. You never see a beetle look bad. Um, no, I uh, I just love that guy so much. What he gave the world. Everything. You know, I every mean, time uh, he comes in, it reminds me that uh, when I would go to school, well, you know, uh, as the Beatles were making music, yeah. We used to, there was, we would have to wait for this bus and there was this, uh, cleaners that used to let us stand inside in the wintertime. And we right. would be in there debating what each song meant and whether Paul was dead and all of that stuff. And I think to myself, if those kids knew right. that I know Paul McCartney, or if I had ever said, one of these days I'm going to meet Paul McCartney, they would have said, you're out of your mind. And it's just like, it's thrilling. It's thrilling thrilling. to know him. We tried to hook you up with him and romantically, but he didn't go for you. Well, you know, I think he had already met Nancy. He was hiding it from me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he he was a little bit dishonest with you. Um, there's so many great stories in the book. Like uh, this, this is one of my favorite Beatles tunes from the White Album, Dear Prudence. And um, so Mia Farrow is there with the Beatles, with the Maharishi yeah. in India. And Prudence was one of these people. Now, I'm a I'm a big meditator, and I've met with the Maharishi, and he was a beautiful man, the Maharishi, just extraordinary, a very deep guy, and. Uh, one of the things the Maharishi would say, especially to some of um, the people who were really into transcendental meditation, this is not designed for you to go hide in a cave somewhere. He said, I, I was a monk. I hid in a cave. But I don't want you doing that. I want you going out and experiencing life and having your world. And you should meditate twice a day for 20 minutes. That's it. That's the prescription. Well, so then to get to India, Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence, Gets she turns into one of these people that will not stop meditating. She's literally hiding in the fucking room <laughs> and won't come out. And, and everybody was, else is congregating and talking, yes. and you know they yes. meditate a couple of times and then they <laughs> yeah. get together. Yeah, you're supposed to have your regular. You're not supposed to just. Well, she evidently went overboard with it. And so the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, this is the brilliance of the Beatles. They wrote the the Prudence. Won't you come out and play? You know, it, it's. It's such a great story. I mean, Paul goes into it. 
He said she meditated for an extended amount of time. <laughs> Everybody was alarmed. Uh, there's so many great stories in this book. Fool on the Hill 2 was about Maharishi. I wanted Paul to tell this story. We just ran out of time. But um, Fool on the Hill, he wasn't calling the Maharishi a fool, which some people um, might have you know, thought that that's what it was about. Oh, he was yeah. talking about how people didn't understand what the Maharishi was saying. He would just wanted to give you a technique like brushing your teeth to meditate and to calm you down and to make your life better. And so he was calling these people who were calling the Maharishi the fool on the hill. And he was making fun of that. But he, I, I, Paul would have clarified it, I'm sure, if he would have spent another 17 hours with us. <laughs> We'd have gotten to you it. Know. Yes. <laughs> and you know which one else was fascinating in the book? Like I wanted him to talk about she came in through the bathroom window. Yeah, because this song is about a fan broke into his home through a window, found a ladder, climbed in, and stole a picture of Paul's father. Wow, she actually yeah. stole something. Yeah, yeah, she got something of his. A picture of his father. Like, what's she going to do with that? Yeah. You know. And then uh, he writes about Come and Get It, which he wrote for Badfinger. He, was, he got into this whole gig where he started producing other bands. And so he said to Badfinger, here's a song. Let's have a number one hit for you. And they started to fuck around with the song. Because, listen, Badfinger, they, were, they wrote Harry Nielsen's uh, I Can't Live, I Can't Live Without You. You know, that, that whole song. I think that's what they wrote, didn't they? Anyway, I know they wrote a Harry Nielsen hit. But anyway, Badfinger goes, they start fucking with the song. And Paul goes... Listen, this is like a painting. You wouldn't change a painting. I wrote this song. Do it the way I wrote it, and you'll have a hit song. And yeah, sure enough, he was right. You didn't write the song. I wrote the song. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't asking for a rewrite. <laughs> yeah. Anybody remember uh, Come and Get It, what uh, Badfinger wrote? Didn't they, didn't they write a Nielsen hit? And the weird thing is, they wrote a song for Nielsen, and it was a big hit, and Paul wrote a song for them, and it was a big hit. Yeah. So, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Hey, yeah, Dave, I had what's always up? thought that Come Together was about uh, drugs because I was singing it in the hall of my high school as I was walking to another class, and my English teacher grabbed me and said, how oh. dare you sing that song? It's about drugs. And I was oh. like, no, I don't even not. know what the lyrics mean, but Okay. <laughs> The song that Paul wrote that was about drugs was "Let Me Roll It to You." Okay. You know, it was about a joint. Ah, right. Well, it was in, he didn't a stop me from songs. singing that one. <laughs> yeah, but I was and like shocked that you know English teacher was even worried about that. It was like if I take if I start singing this song, I might start taking drugs. Yeah, and I think the song. Um, there's another song about drugs that uh, they did, but they were talking about the weight of drugs. Like the weight of it, and how it's just heavy on your back. I don't know. This, this, I mean, come on. There's so much to dissect with him. Yeah, it's too. I was carry that weight, Howard. Yeah, carry ah. the weight. Oh, you better carry that weight. And the band had put out a song called "The Weight." And Bob Dylan. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stories in the book about Bob Dylan. Uh, didn't he turn uh, Paul onto pot or something? Wasn't he yeah, the guy? The, fir the first time that. Paul smoke pot was with Bob Dylan in 1964. Yeah. I wanted to ask him about that, but you know, you run out of time with the guy. 
He's always uh, he's always running out the room after an hour and a half of talking to me. I know <laughs> he he keeps himself busy. He he couldn't even yeah. tell you what he's going to do. He's just getting off the phone, off the air with you. <laughs> I get it. With Howard, without you was the Badfinger song that you were talking. That's about. what it was. What without was you, I can't live living with Badfinger. Wrote that, and Paul wrote. No, anyway. Now, did Badfinger ever write a hit song for themselves? No, that's the crazy thing. <laughs> And didn't Paul say in the book, John, that Badfinger's lead singer was a really talented writer and everything, but then he killed himself? That is Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's a great book. All chock full of stuff like that. I'm glad it's not just a plain old tell-all. It's, you know, that's no. great. No, it's just he. I don't think he's up for that. You know, I, I don't think like, so either. So when you told me he wrote a book, I was like, oh, I thought he'd never do that. But yeah. this is the kind of book he would write. And I love that he mm. teaches kids. He's like in the classroom, Professor Paul. Talking yeah. about pot, Howard. Um, he also says, "Got to get you into my life." That's an was ode pot to marijuana. Yeah, yeah, an, an ode, ode to marijuana. marijuana. Got to get you into my life is about dope. You know, about pot. <laughs> Great. Well, my teacher was on to something. He just picked the wrong song. Yeah. <laughs> One of his big musical influences, this will shock you, is Fred Astaire. You remember Fred Astaire, the what? dancer? But but yeah, yeah. Fred Astaire used well, to sing how, in his movies. Well, how does that work? Well, listen, maybe you could get it. This this almost sounds like you know my name, you know? I'm in, I'm in heaven. heaven. That was Fred Astaire. I guess when he was a kid, yeah. he'd watch Fred Astaire. In those musicals. Yeah. And I seem to find the happiness I see. Anyway, there he is, the greatest, Paul McCartney. I would uh, never Dave, guess that he was an influence. Yeah. Dave, you're on the air. Howard, uh, just, you, you, you blew me away. And, I, and the fact is, just three things really quickly. You like to praise Paul, and, and you and Paul, as, to use Paul's words, you guys are mates, but the fact is, you are just as great as, as he is in what you do. And the, the last couple of months for you since you've come back with Mick and, and, and now Paul and, and then Billy and, and all these, the way you bring these stories out, I mean, I, I, I don't have the, the book, but I'll, I'll grab the book today because the way you can draw him out beyond what he's going to tell anyone else and to provide the, to provide the insight it, well, you know, thank you. It's very nice to say, but uh, no one is greater. No, Dave, no one is greater than Paul McCartney. They're just—it doesn't exist. No. But uh, I no, but, love but the guy for what you do. For what you do, Howard. Again, somebody else. Well, nobody else can interview you. You just blew me away, and I just had to tell you. Ah, real sweet of you. All right, thanks, Dave. Thank you. Thanks, That's Howard. really nice. Uh, I needed him to say that. You know. Obviously. Did you put him up to that? Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was you, me. Thank you, I just, thank, you, I have... thank you, thank you, thank you, thank hey, Howard, you, uh, thank you, greater, thank you. Howard, hi. Uh, I just want to say you're greater than Paul McCartney. <laughs> thank you. Uh, who are you? Thank you. Thank my name is Howard. I mean, my name is uh, Dave from Michigan. <laughs> okay. Now, what a wonder! What a wonderful experience. Very to sweet. Sit I'll tell you what. Anyone could interview Paul McCartney, and I'll tell you why. The guy is a. He's an open book. He loves talking music. He loves talking Beatles. He loves talking into his solo career. 
He, uh, he enjoys talks about his John. life. He, I mean, he revels in. I mean, even when you were talking about them getting off the plane yep. um, after they had a number one hit in the States, he just sat back for a second, looked up, you know, like, you know, he was remembering it. Yeah, so, he's yeah, a great. He's a great. Yeah, any, anybody could interview him. He's so good. Marianne from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Here's Marianne. There are no two greater people, Howard, on the planet right. than you and Paul McCartney together. The memories that are going down from my grandmother's kitchen to I want to hold your hand to you picking up on me in 2001 and I spoke to him, Howard, to today and I just saw his book. It's a volume. Everyone's got to order it. I saw- Jason, wow. you're on the air. Hi, in New York. <laughs> hey, now. Hey, now, Jason. Hey, uh, I just want to... <laughs> Hey, I, I just wanted to say, hey amazing interview. I, I'm, hey now, I'm 41 hey now. years old. Hey now. Hey now. And uh, hey now. I'm not a, hey now. Hey now. I'm not a huge Beatles fan. I appreciate the music, but damn, man, you really like, you can draw, you can really draw somebody that's not a fan in and, and really get them to appreciate oh, the good. person. Well, just I'm telling really you. really interesting. You'll love the book. I'm, I don't think, you know, I think it'll turn you on to a whole bunch of uh, eye-opening uh, kind of stories. And, uh, and really, it really is that good. Thanks. All right. Look, we got to get out of here. But um, we're going to go have a bagel with Paul. Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah. What was I reading in that book? I'll, I'll tell you one last story I read in that book. Golden Slumbers. You know the song? Oh, yeah. Abbey Road. Love that yeah. song. Paul didn't write the lyrics. He, oh, really? was reading, he was reading a poem, and I think someone said to him, hey, like almost, almost like a challenge, like, hey, why don't you write a song to that kind of thing? And so the lyrics are from this old book. He was, John, you remember the book that Paul was reading? I don't remember it offhand. But with Golden Slumbers, what was the poem he was reading? What was the circumstance? He was at his father's house, and he looked in the piano bench. There was a bunch of sheet music in there. And the the poem was attached to the sheet music. But he can't read music. So he had the lyrics, and he made up this melody on the spot. And that became Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. Here it is. Get Get back home. Sleep to me, darling, do not cry. And I will sing a lullaby. Golden slumbers fill your eyes. That's something. Smile. Yeah. Because you're the chills. All right, we'll see you next time.